to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 29, Big Rex. We finally meet the Tyrannosaurus in person, recorded here on August 24th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. I continue thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song Late Bloomer, and our outro is Grow Old or Don't. We have some corrections. Uh, Apparently the best place in the world to see rainbows is in Hawaii, not in a box of frosted Lucky Charms. My mistake. Sundown in Costa Rica in August is actually around 5.45 p.m., as they use in the book. Not anything like the about 8.45 p.m. we have here in Ontario. I had no idea, and I stand corrected. And this is a good one. The Canary Islands aren't named after canaries, but in fact, their Spanish ancestry means that the original name was Canarie Insule, which is Latin for Island of Dogs. So how do you like that? We have dinosaur news. In January 2020, the paper Cranial Anatomy of Allosaurus Jim Madsenai, a new species from the lower part of the Morrison Formation of Western North America, gave us a new allosaur to play with. Allosaurus is one of the best-known theropod dinosaurs from the Jurassic, and a crucial taxon in phylogenetic analyses, begins the paper. Quote, on the basis of an in-depth first-hand study of the bulk of allosaurus specimens housed in North American institutions, the authors describe in this paper a new theropod dinosaur from the upper Jurassic Morrison Formation of Western North America, Allosaurus Jim Madsenai, based upon a remarkably complete articulated skeleton and a skull, and a second specimen with an articulated skull and associated skeleton too. The name Jim Madsenai honors James H. Madsen Jr., who made, quote, outstanding contributions to our knowledge of Allosaurus through his Herculean efforts of protecting, excavating, preparing, and curating of many thousands of Allosaurus bones. The holotype DINO-11541 was uncovered from the Morrison Formation at Dinosaur National Monument and is comprised of a nearly complete and articulated skeleton, including the left half of the skull. This means that the Morrison Formation contains two valid species of Allosaurus, with differences in the jugal, maxilla, and nasal bones differing, uh, which are features associated both with signaling structures, uh, like the nasolacrimal crest in the Allosaurus gemadsoni and the lacrimal horn of Allosaurus fragilis. And, uh, and there are apparently craniofacial modifications between them as well. And in other news, let's perhaps chat about a newly named dinosaur that was dug up in 1978, but renamed in 2019. It's the tricky to say, Inwevu Intoloco. <laughs> the paper Inwevu Intoloco, a new early sauropodomorph dinosaur from the lower Jurassic Elliot formation of South Africa, and comments on cranial ontogeny in Mesospondylus carinatus, names a new genus of upper Elliot basal sauropodomorph based on a complete skull and a partial skeleton. The name is the Josha word, X-H-O-S-A, Josha word for gray skull, which is the name of a really cool sounding castle if you ask me. The holotype BP-1-4779 is housed at the Evolutionary Studies Institute, formerly the Bernard Price Institute for Paleontological Research, and it was excavated from the Elliot Formation, where lots of sauropodomorphs, or prosaur, I guess that's what they're called, Prosauropods are found. The critter was about 10 feet long and was previously assigned to Massospondylus carinatus, but I guess after careful review, there were 16 distinguishing cranial and six postcranial characters that led the authors to erect a new genus. 
Osteohistological examination reveals that the specimen had nearly reached adult size at the time of its death at a minimum of about 10 years old. Quote, although previously referred to Massospondylus carinatus, the holotype specimen of Inguevu intuloco can be differentiated from other basal seropodomorphs by a combination of 22 characters, conclude the authors. Quote, these characters are not the result of ontogeny, sexual dimorphism, or distortion. Phylogenetic analysis reveals Massospondylae was a diverse, successful clade with members present on three major continents between the late Triassic and early Jurassic. The description of Inguevu shows the utility of better understanding ontogenetic variation in densely sampled dinosaur taxa and the benefits of critically reassessing previously collected material. All right, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. I'd like to welcome uh, a guest who you'll recall was my great guest in episode eight, Shore of the Inland Sea from the Missing Compies podcast. It's the welcome return of Justin Kiley. How are you doing, Justin? I am losing my damn mind. You know what? For anybody listening, don't ever get two puppies at the same time if uh, the person that you are attached to is easily stressed out. It is. Um, oh, no. It's something else right now, but I'm sure it'll be worth it down the line. But if you do hear any sort of barking at my end, mm-hmm. uh, that would be one of our, our puppies. Anyways. But yeah, no, it's going good. I'm I'm excited. I love having puppies. It's you know, it, it's just it's hard when they're young. I have to tell you, the the missing po- compies podcast remains an excellent body of work, and uh, it's filled with all kinds of fun details about Jurassic Park and anyone who's interested in the old scripts. I, I love the the work you guys do going through the the different drafts of each of the scripts and uh, uh, reading through them you. so we don't have to. I think was important <laughs> in evaluating them and things like that. So uh, that was good. What stands out, I guess, when you looked at the old scripts about how the movies changed from the original concepts to the finished product? Like, is it often the director just used them as a jumping off point or, or what, what's your interpretation of how the scripts ever influenced the, the final products? Obviously, for Jurassic Park, there's there's so many scripts out there. Like we have, I think it's like six different scripts. There's even uh, two different scripts of, of the actual film that David Cott script that uh, the shooting script is actually subtly different from the film. And um, I actually think that's the most interesting. We haven't covered it yet. And it's one I want to, I want to talk about because it's, it's the movie, you know, that was the shooting script, but they, they clearly cut things either for time or uh, budget reasons. And, and then the stuff they cut in that script actually kind of makes me saddest because it's not a lot, but like the stuff they cut, I wish they kept in. There's a lot of stuff with like Grant and the dig site where he, is shown to be even more of a teacher. Uh, there's stuff with the kid. I know one thing. One thing that bothers me about the movie is when that kid shows up. It's like, why is he there? <laughs> and uh, it it is explained better in that there's not just a random kid. There's like a bunch of kids. Just stuff like that. There's um, there's stuff with Ellie and Alan. They have much more of a, a defined relationship. They even kiss at one point. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I, I think I think that should have been left in the film. Uh, if you're gonna make them a couple, make them a couple. Don't honestly, they're they're probably one of the worst on-screen couples because it's so like ill-defined. You know, it's like it's like X Files <laughs> with uh, Scully and Mulder in this whole yeah, way. Mulder, there was like this yeah. are they aren't they sort of thing, and and they because they, they were uh-huh. so professional, right? But it was always there. It yeah. was such a subtext, right? And it wasn't like teased in like a amateurish way. It was so so subtle. And you're right. It it uh, it's it's been one of the greatest mysteries of the film, I think. <laughs> I mean, there's really only one line of dialogue in the entire movie that references that they're a couple, and it's when uh, Malcolm asks, just says, you know, like you're you're, and then he 
grant, you know, nods. And it's like, okay, so they yeah. are a couple. But, like, other than that, I mean, and the way they talk to each other is very much like a couple. So, like, again, you they're a couple. You can see that. Yeah. But it's a little bit better to find in, in the shooting script. And I, it's, um, it's kind of odd to me that they decided to cut that. You know, it's stuff like that. The first scripts for Jurassic Park clearly are like, we don't, we're not worried about the budget. We're not worried about how we're going to do it. Let's just, you know, write the film. Mm-hmm. And Crichton took uh, two different cracks at it. And then, you know, subsequent drafts were kind of based on his. And Crichton's first draft is is very interesting because um, obviously that's his, you know, he took his own book. So I always find that, fu- you know, fascinating when a, a writer of the book comes in and writes a script and you kind of see like what, what did they think was important, you know? And um, there, there's definitely, I think it's a little bit more of a complicated film. There's, you know, a subplot with the uh, Raptors get into the mainland is in his script. And that's something that I wish they hadn't cut from the film because mm. I think it, in the book, it really gives you a sense of like, there's a time limit, Like they have got to get back. They've got to stop the boat. And so, you know, the movie becomes like more of a, ticking clock rather than just we're gonna you know get back to survive like what we ended up with i, I liked that element and i think it would have been nice if they had been able to to work that in you know to the finished film you make a good uh, point because they like keeping dinosaurs from the mainland even in the films was like really something very important and the only one they ever let off the island is the the t-rex at the end yeah and the baby mm-hmm. and, the, and the third one so that first three those first three films were very specifically like dinosaurs are located on this little island and for some reason on also a second island but that's it and they're not on the mainland and they were very clear about that yeah mm-hmm. and yeah the, and it's never really it's never really brought up like in the films the first three films they never really talk about the idea of them mm-hmm. escaping like that whole not subplot from the book is uh completely gone whereas it's, the book starts with dinosaurs you know, are on the mainland <laughs> that's how the book yeah. starts mm-hmm. yeah and 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 that's one thing that the I, I give i give colin a lot of credit because i think that's one thing that the Jurassic world films did do is they uh you know, it took three films to get there, but they did get the dinosaurs onto the mainland. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Crichton, in the very first book, was already on his mind. Um, as far as the other scripts go, Jurassic Park 3 doesn't have a script. There's, like, a script that's <laughs> kind of, like, famous in how crazy it is, but, like, has never been shown to the public. Uh, Dan Stevens, who did a, a very cool podcast on, on just Jurassic Park 3, could not get anyone to give him that script. And, like, he is the biggest fan a Jurassic Park 3 you will ever find. And I love Jurassic Park 3, so I, I, I'm totally there with him. Mm-hmm. But he loves that film, and he talked to people, and yeah, no one would give him that script. And so it's, I, I'd love to see just how crazy it was and, and what it was. Um, the Lost World script is probably the other one. We did cover that. That one just makes me sad. I, I think the script was far better than what we got. I do not, and I, everybody knows this, I do not enjoy The Lost World like some people in the fandom. I think it's um, an entirely watchable movie, but I would say it's an entirely watchable train wreck. I think it I think it sacrifices. It's got great characters. Roland Timbo is awesome. He's, he, like we talked about off air, he's Muldoon from the book, like mm-hmm. just straight up. I mean, it's, it's wild to me that Muldoon in Jurassic Park is, He's fine. It's a great performance, but like he's a he's a he's a throwaway character that dies and like that's it. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, Roland is is like Muldoon 2.0, and he is he might as well be the same damn character. And again, like yeah, yeah. closer to the book Muldoon, like he drinks 
that's something you don't see it much in the movie. They cut the scene, but you know, the book Muldoon is a drunkard. So that was nice to see, you know, that they, they gave a role in that. But yeah, that script is, um, it's just a better script. It's a better movie. Like mm -hmm. I, I will never understand why Spielberg did what he did with that film. I mean, in the script, like Ian Malcolm's whole motivation is so much more intelligent and so much less of the, I have to say, my girlfriend from the island, which I just think is stupid and antiquated. And every time I watch the movie, it bothers me. And it's really, and I'm not even doing like the, the woke 2022 lens. I don't think that's fair to ever look at a film now and go, oh, well, this is probably, like, I hate that. It's just, mm -hmm. no. But just as a storyline, I just think it's stupid. Like, it, it just bothers me. And um, <laughs> yeah, that whole, that, whole, that whole script is better. If you haven't, check out our episode on it or go read it yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect script. And the other thing, too, with that script is that Kelly's relationship with Malcolm is much better defined. And there's just a lot more drama with it. It's more interesting than what we got with uh, the final film. So that's another thing. So I really hate that character in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, not the actress, but just the characters. Not I don't like her. I think she's annoying. And I, I like her in the script, though, because there's a lot more about uh, the relationship and the problems with it. And uh, I, I don't know, just the whole thing's great. Uh, it's really a really good script. And I think all your uh, script breakdowns are like multi-episodes. I think there's a lot of, lot of detail put into them. So <laughs> people can certainly find yeah. those and they're really good. Like I said, they read them so you don't mm -hmm. have to. And, uh, and that's worthwhile sometimes. Uh, I know that uh, yeah. the latest couple episodes you have are on uh, Jurassic World Dominion. And I know you got one coming up on Prey. What, mm -hmm. uh, what should listeners be looking forward to when they, when they pop through into the, the Missing Compies podcast? So yeah, Dominion, we... we... We actually did a three-parter, and I stupidly, because uh, we just got puppies, as, as I talked about earlier, uh, I have had no time to do anything with the podcast, and so <laughs> our recordings for the part three kind of disappeared. Uh, so unfortunately, we won't be able to do that, but um, oh, no. it's kind of okay. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's annoying, but it's my own fault. But it's okay, because the extended edition just came out, and... Uh, my co-hosts are not going to have access to that till the end of the month, but I think we're just going to skip part three and just do a review of the extended because mm. honestly, it, it's the only movie to watch now. Like the, the theatrical is dog shit compared to it. It's and I, I have my issues with Dominion just as a movie in and of itself. It's, anybody that hated the movie is going to hate it regardless. Like the extended cut doesn't help that, <laughs> but. It, it does make the film better. Like, mm -hmm. it, it is the best version of Dominion. And I, mind-boggling that Universal decided to do what they did. I think it, it's really stupid, especially when you see what they cut. It's mind-bogglingly stupid. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> once again, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings. Like, once you have extended, don't ever watch that theatrical cut. It's just gotcha. night and day. And But, yeah, we'll have that coming out. We're going to be covering Prey. Yeah, so speaking um, of movies you did like, uh, Prey comes out too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I, it, it, you know, Prey, Prey was the movie I was looking forward to actually the most next mm -hmm. to Dominion because I'm a huge Predator fan and The Predator was a train wreck. And so I was a little nervous, but the concept of Prey, you know, the Native American story 300 years in the past, mm -hmm. just thought that was such a cool storyline. And yeah, I, th I thought the movie was incredible. I think they did an, an amazing job. It really gives me hope that the next couple Predator films are going to kind of mm -hmm. do that, do 
small scale films set in different periods of time, I think is the way to go with that franchise. And I hope they stick with it. It shows how much, how much it means to a film to do authentic world building and to set it in Mm -hmm. a, in a place that makes sense in a, in a world or in a community that has some life to it. Whereas like, I remember loving predator two and then looking back on it, um, it looks like most people have watched it and thought it might be with the worst of the bunch. And I was like, Oh wow, really? And so I must be looking mm-hmm. at it through like a, obviously a preteen, you know, your first forays into these kind of slaughter, slatter, splatter movies or whatever. But, um, just being, I mean, Danny Glover was awesome. And, uh, in any case, I remember it fondly, although it seems that critics, you know, the Leonard Maltons out there, uh, all hated it. But that being said, this one, this latest one is good. And I think it goes to show you, you put a, put in a, a crazy scenario to a real group of people is better than just having crazy unusual people fighting crazy unusual things <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean but the thing with the predator films like first one's a classic it's perfect it's awesome you know arnold and and all that's great i think predator 2 i i uh i'm kind of with you i like predator 2 i think predator 2 did a lot to build the character of the predator the film itself has got a lot of it's a it's a thoroughly 90s film um it, it's pretty over the top you know i think for what that film did for the the creature was really cool and danny glover is pretty good in it um and then predators i thought was excellent i thought that was a great sequel um the only one i think is terrible is the predator i think it's honestly it's shocking well no it's not fair avp requiem is also pretty awful although the predator in that film is amazing uh that that, that predator is great it's just mm-hmm. the unfortunate it's kind of like predator 2 but the predator is great the film he's in is not um and uh but yeah no i mean prey is like such a it's just such a simple film right like you have the native americans 300 years ago just just doing their thing mm-hmm. and then this predator shows up and it's the first time the predator's ever been to earth and so like the predator's learning and you get to watch that happen. And I think that's so cool. Like the idea of this, this is the first time. So, you know, they don't, he doesn't know anything. And like just watching as he works his way up the food. Sorry, mild spoilers for prey. Um, <laughs> watching, yeah, up the food chain. Watching yeah. as he, uh, he works his way up that food chain is just so cool. And then you have her, the main character, um, lead, uh, working her way up to, you know, the, to hunt. And it's just when they come together, I don't know, the movie's, the movie's great. I, I think it did a great thing. I actually hope that other franchises, I hope Jurassic kind of does what they, I think Jurassic really needs to, after Dominion, I uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I really want Jurassic to go back and simplify. And I actually think, mm-hmm. I think Prey uh, is, an, is an incredible way to do, like to, I'll tell you what I want real quick, uh, since this is a Jurassic podcast. I want Jurassic, if Jurassic World Dominion will not be the last Jurassic movie. The movie's made a billion dollars. All three did. Critics, you know, can go to hell. It doesn't matter. People gave it, like, an, people love Dominion. Like, Dominion actually did really well with just general audiences, right? And uh, a lot, even better than Fallen Kingdom, which is mind-blowing to me, because I think Fallen Kingdom is the superior film. But um, it did really well. So we're going to get another one. It's only a matter of time. But what I think they should do is okay, so Dominion happened, dinosaurs are out in the world. If it's a sequel to Dominion, do something where it's like a group of people that go camping in Montana or Canada and they they get stalked by a dinosaur. And that's the movie. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the whole movie. It's just this group that gets stuck, you know, in a survival situation, not on an island, you know, somewhere different, somewhere that we haven't seen, you know, temperate forest, 
<laughs> that's what I want. You know, like I think that'd be so cool. You know, you could bring back the fear of a suspense, really make it about the characters mm -hmm. and kind of get away from the action adventure that they've been doing. I think that'd be stellar. That's just me, but I think that's uh, what I want. I think the, the general audience's um, viewing habits have kind of contributed to the the uh, serial, serialization of all the sequels that we get. So all of the intellectual property just never die. And, and by yeah. the virtue of there being always another story, the, the, the universes in which these stories are told get more and more complicated. And we finally get into these unusual, just bizarre worlds <laughs> that, that have been you know erected through the different <laughs> sequels. And I think um, Predator might have found the solution by, you know like you said, shrinking the story down, changing the scale. Going back in time is a great setting because all of mm -hmm. that... All the complications in the universe building have been eliminated. <laughs> and I think Jurassic World might have benefited from that as well. Boy, if there was some way to take all these complications away and, and tell a story that's smaller and doesn't have to live with all of these consequences that have been erected throughout. Because you got to raise the stakes every time you make a movie. And then at the end, you're like, well, what are we even doing anymore? <laughs> well, and that's, and that's the problem with Jurassic, I think, is like now... I don't know, the stakes in Dominion are kind of weird because they don't do a good job of giving you stakes in the movie. That's actually one of my problems with it. it they could have. They, there is a way to do it. I think the locust angle, they could have done a lot more with that to make it more of like a, the locust is really going to be this, this world problem. But yeah, the film doesn't have any real, you can't, it's not a superhero movie. The, the T-Rex isn't going to take over the world. It's not a supervillain. And so you, you have to figure out some way to, like I said, to do something a little different. So I, I that's why I said, make it, Make it a story of like a couple camping or just something like that. Or my other thought, like you said, as I still want my series about John Lockwood and John Hammond, because I mm -hmm. still think you could do something really interesting in a series format. Well, you know, I don't know. I think Universal hopefully is going to do something, but we'll see. Universal's let me down before. So, <laughs> um, you know, as long as I don't go Camp Cretaceous, I, I just don't need to see the. Uh, I actually like that show a lot. It's super fun, but man, I you know if I ever try to do any of that in live action, I'm gonna have a uh, a mild heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be fun today to to go back and look at all of the different films and see if we can't find the find the vestiges of of the original novel, or and even the Lost World Jurassic Park. If we can find if we can find where some of those you know scenes have literally been lifted. I was just gonna say, do you want to start with the Lost World? I would because I think Jurassic. Okay. Park. Almost every scene is adapted from <laughs> from yeah, the novel, yeah. and so what you see is what you get. Uh, we all are pretty familiar with that, but uh, I think with um, okay. the Lost World, Jurassic Park, I I did reread it earlier this year. Well, and uh, I remember the film pretty good. And I was like, geez, yeah. how did the novel go? And I was like, I went back and checked it out, and it's like, wow, they have an entirely different cast, and they do entirely yeah. different things. This is not the same. Yeah. They are not the same. They are not nope. related in any no. way, almost. Oh. And I thought that's ridiculous. <laughs> so structurally, yeah, the yeah. novel, yeah, is written very similarly to Jurassic Park. The first hundred pages are like getting to the island, just like in the first book. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a strange mystery to be solved, like why are these animals washing up, which is kind of the same. And uh, instead of being broken into iterations, they're called configurations of complexity theory instead of chaos theory. Like yeah. his, his, the anatomy of how he built that book is the same. And he just plopped different characters, including two kids, including a scientist, including mm -hmm. different things. And he changed a bit of stuff, but it got really bizarre. And I was wondering, the motivations for Malcolm to be like, I must know why extinction happened. 
That's my. Yeah. That's the most important thing in the world to me. Like that seems odd, <laughs> but. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I think I think the problem with um, the problem with that book. I, I like that book a lot, but yeah, I think I totally agree. Yeah. I think Malcolm's motivation is um, truly bizarre. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. You, you could that would that doesn't make any sense. It's like it takes three seconds to figure out that makes no sense. You can't study a group of dinosaurs that have been brought back to life, thrown on an island with contemporaries mm-hmm. that they didn't exist with. Like you're not going to learn any. You wouldn't even know if they're dinosaurs. They're genetically engineered. Like. Mm-hmm. The idea that you could study extinction through that is... Yeah, you don't learn uh, about wild elephants ridiculous. with elephants in captivity. Like, it's totally different. Yeah. And they share a, a common a, a common fiasco is uh, both both novels break into chaos after Biosyn gets involved. So I think that's interesting. But uh, the, the similarities yeah. kind of end there. One of the cool things, and it blew me away when we thought about it for the first time, that, that uh, Procomp Signathus is not in Jurassic Park. They only make their first nope. appearance in The Lost World. And that's incredible because they're so in our minds about like one of the main characters in the, in the franchise, but they didn't exist in the original. I think that's just fascinating. Funny to me, cause they have the best, uh, and they still haven't, and I don't know if the film will ever, like the series is ever going to have the to do it, but man, they, they, the copies in the book still have the best kill. And like one of the most horrific kills of the entire like series. Uh, the idea of a, of a baby being eaten alive is, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, just, it's just so cool. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a great, horrific, you know, and you could do that with a PG-13. You could you could imply there's a way to make that. I mean, I could even direct that. Like, I, it, I if Jurassic Park had opened with, with a copy, you know, jumping out of a, a baby's crib with blood dripping from its mouth and, like, the crack of thunder, you know, the lightning crack of thunder. And I don't know. I, oh, man, I get chills because i just i love that the mm-hmm. way mike uh Crichton just describes that and i think that would have been uh this would have been cool no, Dr- like jurassic park's an awesome movie but the way jurassic park opens up with the the raptor cage like i've never been fond of that uh, i actually think it it's very problematic i don't know if anyone listening has ever really thought about this but if you watch the the opening of jurassic park and you get over the you know the directing style like it's a great direction job but just look at the the fact that all the workers in that scene have M4s and MP5s and shotguns, and then wonder about the rest of the movie and where all of those guns went, because <laughs> they literally have machine guns, and you know the rest of the movie we get a shotgun later on, which I mean, and don't get me started on how stupid that shotgun scene with Grant is. It's a wild scene that I don't know Spielberg. I, I still don't know why, and that's not in the book either. The book they don't have guns. So the fact that Spielberg was like, well, we're going to give, we're going to give them an army mm-hmm. and this one, and then no one uses the guns. Yeah. The guys get eaten alive and no one's like, ah, nah, we're just, we're not going to go in there. Like they could have shot that raptor in the face and it, you know, maybe saved him. But instead it's like, well, we'll wait till it, I guess, rips him apart and then we're going to shoot. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. <laughs> it's such a weird That guy, when he gets lifted into the air like 10 feet, it's like, <laughs> what, what the hell is that raptor doing back? Like. I think the opening for Jurassic Park is uh, a little too much like Jaws for my taste. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of bizarre uh. things happening there. But it's scary. Yeah. You can't take that away from it. It is scary. It. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. It, the first time you watch it, it's terrifying. But the third time or fourth time, it starts to lose a lot of that. That's the problem. That's why I think that copy mm-hmm. would have been way cooler because that always would be scary. Right. So there, the two scenes that are in The Lost World, in particular where... The little girl is bitten by a whole pack of compies. In the novel, mm-hmm. is just a girl getting attacked by one compy, but yeah. her parents are there. Uh, they are yeah. on, they're just like on a tour visiting Costa Rica. They're not 
uh, wealthy yachter is going to um, <laughs> to Isla Sorna for some reason. But uh, oh, so yeah, in that it. film, when you watch it, everybody's dressed like a captain. There are like eight it's eight bizarre. people rushing around, and they all have a captain's hat. Like, it's... <laughs> but they're but they're I, like I really... servers. But I, I think that what was neat about what they did was is they build it up with in the novel anyhow a small animal, and so you don't know what a raptor is, you don't know that they're cloning dinosaurs, and you just have like this chicken-sized animal that's causing a lot of trouble. And uh, and as the dinosaurs get bigger, things get scarier. And I think that's so neat. And you're right. Maybe they didn't need to have a raptor lifting a guy clear ten feet into the air, like a giant sized shark, to to set the it's tone. Just weird. Yeah. Uh, it's, the, it's the physics of it. Mm-hmm. Blow me away. <laughs> the copies don't in any of the movies eat any dinosaur dung, which would have been no something don't. that could have uh, adapted out of the 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 book a little bit better. Uh, that'd have been a little fun. And then obviously the scene where uh, Dieter is. Uh, Overwhelmed by a pack of of compies is an allusion to to Hammond's ending in, yeah, in the novel as yeah. well, which is really powerful. And uh, I find them, <laughs> I think that the cheerfulness and the and the good naturedness of the de, you know the design of Jurassic Park that was in the film, that was so opposite to what the the, the dastardly sort of psychopathic motivations of Hammond in the book really puts like a monkey wrench in designing future films because you don't have like this single-minded villain that's only interested in doing what he wants and not listening to anybody and so you've got this yeah. weird world where no no no, he meant really well and now we're gonna have to make it a nature preserve and i'm a nice guy and you're gonna build a statue of me and things like that whereas you know that hammond uh in the novel would never would never survive <laughs> no that that hammond in the novel reminds me of I guess I'll just say certain politicians over here. Like he, he's a uh, there's there's a very clear analog for Hammond in the book, but uh, that unfortunately exists in America. But yeah, he's the son of a bitch. You know, he's a pure capitalist. I mean, he really is like just pure capitalism. I mean, somebody could be ripped in part in front of him, and as long as he could get away with it, he would still, you know, let Open someone right, go yeah. in right after that. So yeah, it's. You know, they, they really turned him into Walt Disney in the movie. And it's and Richard Annenberg was, like, the thing that's kind of sucky is, like, he could have played that character. And there's definitely moments in the film where you can see that version of Hammond. Uh, the best, in fact, the best scene in the whole movie, in my opinion, is the, the Petticoat Lane scene where he's talking to Sattler as his, you know, dream is kind of falling apart. And that, that moment, and that's the one time you see the Hammond from the book show up. And, uh, of course, he disappears as soon as, like, Ellie lays the law down. So, I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't last very long. But, like, he, he was there for a second. And I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Jurassic Park's a great movie, but there, there's definitely an alternate reality where there's a much more faithful version that mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be very curious to see. Also, in The Lost World, we get the, the moment where the T-Rex's head goes through the, through the waterfall waterfall and it uh so the waterfall scene from the lost world is in the first novel the big rex is digging at uh, lex and tim who are behind a waterfall in a cre- crevice and it's got like this strange highly percent pre- pre- prehensile tongue with like a forked split and it's said to wrap around uh i forget is it lex or tim's head but well, one of them wraps around their uh, head yeah, like a them. snake and uh no, no no it must be tim because lex is there and she literally says i hate him as uh okay. she doesn't know God, what else to do and in the film while the Rex is digging behind the waterfall, Vince Vaughn's Nick Van Owen also yells, I hate him. And it sounds goofy yeah. when he says it, but it's, that's literally 
lifted from the book. And then instead of having a snake-like tongue that wraps around people like a snake, what happens behind the waterfall? There's an actual snake. There's a snake that, <laughs> that chases the guy out. So there's you can see this adaptation is, has been lifted right out of the first novel. And I like that. I like they went back to the first novel. I would have liked if they went through some of the second novel too when they wrote that movie. But, <laughs> but it's interesting yeah, how... You know, I wonder if some of this uh, first movie was already on the page using the first novel as as a script um, before they even got the second draft of the or the second movie's draft. I, I wonder because there are a lot more of the first book in the second movie than there is of the second book in the second movie. One of the besides the full length script that David Cup has written, which was done before Spielberg changed the uh, the third act of the movie, and they had to completely retrofit the film to make that third act you know to work it in there uh, i would argue it doesn't make any sense but it, it's in there <laughs> there um there was an outline that was written uh that was a, a lot closer to the actual book with um dachshund showing up and and stuff like that so they they definitely knew what Crichton was working on i mean Crichton and spielberg were at that point were were talking together and i think Crichton has said in interviews before he passed away like you know, they basically did their own things and just used the same names. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was always kind of designed as we're gonna, you know, Spielberg's gonna do his sequel and I'm gonna do the book, and they're really two different animals. But um, he seemed at peace with that. Didn't yeah, he? I mean, <laughs> I mean, to be to be honest, I still think the book is far better than the movie. Like, I, I yeah, definitely, yeah. other than Malcolm's motivation, I I love the Lost World because there's there's just great set pieces in there, mm-hmm. and the only thing, because you know, you told me what today's talk was the only thing I could come up with personally that really they pulled from the book and put in the movie and they still changed a lot was the idea of you had the RV, which is one of the coolest production design wise. I love the lost world film. Mm -hmm. Like the the vehicles are just, yeah, they're so cool. And the the camper RV thing is, is wild. That whole sequence where it's being attacked by the T-Rexes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Spielberg at its best. Like for the most part, there's some stupid shit in there too, but but overall, that, that sequence is phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah. And it is ripped out of the book. I mean, the difference being in the book, they're not suspended over the water. Uh, they're just suspended over the land, mm-hmm. um, which makes a little more sense. I'm not sure why why it would go you know, over the edge of a cliff that's like 600 feet tall and over water. And I, I don't know. that that. Yeah, that's, that's really the only thing I could come up with. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you do have the high hide, but in the movie, it's, it's a really weird thing in the movie. I, it took me a long time to even figure out as a kid, like what the hell that it, that was. And <laughs> there's a car and there's a winch. It, it seems really strange to me. Like a winch cable is not a thing that's like an easy thing to throw. Yeah. There's definitely ways to get a winch up over a tree. It's really a bizarre contraption. Uh, there's also a moment where like Eddie gets in the car and leaves it. And I'm trying to remember it. If they only have the one Jeep, I think they only have the one Jeep, which is even stranger. How do you winch, if they winch up that, that high hide, then the Jeep has got to be the counterweight, but it's holding it in the air. Yeah. It's... So then how does Eddie get in the Jeep and then drive through the wood? Yeah, anyways. Eddie was a, a, an extraordinary <laughs> engineer, isn't that correct? <laughs> he was, but... <laughs> Maybe he was more like Ted Kaczynski. He could change <laughs> the physics of things very, very uh, mathematically and... and uh... That was an amazing scene I mean, with Eddie, though. Eddie's really the hero in that moment. Like like I said, it's a great scene. It's mm-hmm. just uh, full of problems. Uh, there's a very strange banana sound effect that gets added in the Slip movie on a banana part? Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. that's uh, an, a, a connection back to Nedry falling down the hill. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> weird. I don't know why Spielberg did that twice because it's stupid as hell in the first film. It takes all the tension right out of the right out of the scene, and yeah. then they do the same dumbass sound effect in the Lost World, and it's. I think uh, um, in terms of adaptations, I think the ending too with the juvenile Rex in the book it uh, it attacks Dodson in the nest after he's been crippled and the baby gets to learn yeah. how to hunt, whereas it's uh, uh, Ludlow in the bow of the ship. That yeah. has been crippled and learns how to hunt as the the Jew, uh, the baby gets him. And I thought because I hadn't read the book in so long that maybe that was an allusion to Ed Regis in the first book, but it's not. It's yeah, like right out of yeah. the Lost World. But maybe it's a bit of both. And uh, and as well, obviously, Roland Tembo has got to be a reconnection to like they call him the Great White Hunter, and that's what exactly mm-hmm. they call Muldoon in the book. So mm-hmm. uh, the only I thing they're the missing is the book describes him having a great big steely gray mustache, and I think boy that would have been fun to have. In either of those characters. Yeah, I still want him to have the flamethrower. The flamethrower. Uh, yeah, in one of the early scripts uh, for Jurassic Park, he has a flamethrower. Oh my and, uh, I I would love that so much. It would really bring the Carpenters, the thing, back to me. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. He had Muldoon's flamethrower. He had ro- shoulder-mounted rocket launchers in the book. And uh, he, yeah. he never got to use anything like that. And that was no. probably to fight... I mean, he blows the legs off of raptors. He never got to use it on mm-hmm. the Rex, and I think he wanted to. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, he shoots the Rex with the uh, the um, trank dart with it, but yeah, he doesn't actually shoot an explosive at the Rex. Um, they <laughs> they do show up, though, in Jurassic World. We can talk about it, because that's actually one of the fun little book references. Oh, for sure. Well, we're almost there. Law, missile launchers. So in yeah. Jurassic Park 3, I feel like uh, Jurassic Park 3 uh, played on the idea that the Lost World introduced, and that was we have a separate island where the animals have been running free, and Jurassic Park 3 wonders what else did InGen leave off their list. And I thought that was kind of fun. And so the novel, The Lost World, mm-hmm. has all kinds of neat new dinosaurs that were, weren't on Jurassic Park, and so does Jurassic Park 3. That was a fun mm-hmm. you know, con- uh, addition. And whereas Jurassic Park, The Lost World, didn't really... I mean, it gave us the copies, but what else, right? In terms of like a new animal. Yeah. Um, in Jurassic Park three, we get the Carnotaurus just in a passing, but that was an important animal in the book. And then we obviously get, and then it you know reappears. It was in Fallen Kingdom. It wasn't in Dominion, was it? The well, Carnotaurus. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I mean, not to correct you, but in, in Jurassic Park three, that's actually a Ceratosaurus. Oh, that's uh, right. That shows me. And it's a really bad Ceratosaurus. It's a really, really bad Ceratosaurus. It's actually the model of the T-Rex. If you watch the film carefully, they added it at the last minute. So it's the T-Rex with buck teeth uh, and a nose nose hump. But oh, yeah, it's really totally bad. right. Totally you right. Can, huh? Well, then Carnotaurus didn't make it. <laughs> no, after all no, that time. That's why when you said yeah, when you said that, I was gonna be like, no, that's that's Fallen Kingdom, mm. and that is a connection to the book. But yeah, no, he no Carnotaurus, just a a T-Rex model with a, a nose hump to claim a claim a Ceratosaurus. But they did give us the aviary. So finally, the they aviary did. that everybody loved in the book makes its appearance in the third film. And I think that was really the connection that was important. And the aviary is done well. That was an excellent scene. Yes, excellent. Mm-hmm. And if, One of the best sequences. And if Jurassic Park 3 had not been measured against the original Jurassic Park, it would almost be considered a great, great movie. <laughs> but, um, and it was a fine movie. Well, that... that... I think it's a great, yeah, I think it's a fine movie. I think you got to get rid of the uh, uh, talking Velociraptors scene uh, to really to really get it up over the hump. But, I, yeah, it's a fun movie. Some interesting choices in that one, yeah. What's really weird about the, the somebody pointed this out is, uh, to me when I was watching it, is why does Grant dream about the new Velociraptor? 
if he's dreaming, <laughs> he should be dreaming about the Velociraptor that he saw in Jurassic Park, not the Jurassic Park 3 version. It's true. So, yeah, I don't know. Before he's even seen. Before he's yeah. seen. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, magic. He's got tele, 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 telepathy or whatever. <laughs> well, nonetheless, so like uh, we we segue ourselves into Jurassic World, and so this new trilogy must have gone back and looked at the source text once again to see what what can we do to anchor this in a reality that was built by Crichton. One of the things they take some creative license with that really stands out to me is the portrayal of Henry Wu, and um, have you you recall Tim Burton's Batman with Jack Nicholson as the Joker? <laughs> yeah. All right. So the Joker was this insane artist who would basically vandalize existing things of beauty and then say, "Ah, I have created something even better because now this is insane," or something like that. And so he mutilated beautiful people's faces, and he spray painted works of art, and he listened to Prince. So you know, he just was crazy right to the bone. And um, <laughs> this, so this is the type of artist that Jurassic World turns Wu into for some reason. And he's not insane. But he's like driven to do something as a creative expression with living things as like an unwholesome characteristic of himself or something. So Novel Wu was interested in making the dinosaur slower and more controllable with the version 4.4 update. So when people say like, ah, yeah, like genetic engineering was part of what they were doing in, in the book. Like, yeah, but he was trying to engineer them backwards as opposed to what they were. So I, I feel like they, they took some creative license in terms of making him like he, he turned into like a mad scientist. And there's one line where I think um, he actually, Wu in the novel, is in like indignant that somebody would even believe that he might be a part of something that was um, dangerous or out of control. That he took great, like he has this creed where he would never do such a thing. And he seems to take umbrage that somebody might think he would even do something like that. And so that's the kind of Wu we got in the book. Now, obviously, this is many years later, but he's gone full mad scientist by the end. <laughs> and so Jurassic World's done an interesting job bringing that to the forefront <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean there's definitely that's like that's a fair read of it uh, i have a different read in my own head but it's somewhat headcanon so i mean obviously not official um but as far as like the the woo character go i mean obviously in in the film dress park woo is like a he's barely in there he's yeah. in there for like for three seconds that actor has giddy Wan has since said like there's more in the script he saw for that character, and he was really, really upset. Um, he has claimed there could have been some racism involved. I mean, if you know if that's how he felt, I mean, who knows? Probably true, honestly. So that's really unfortunate if that's the case. And I know he was really, really happy to come back to that role and do something meatier with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, all that to say, I think in the book at least, I've always read, and obviously again, he has a much bigger part in the book, like a huge part. But I've always read Wu as, you know, he's, in the book, he's very, like, he wants to get his name out there. Like, that is something in the book. You know, in fact, the only reason he works with Hammond is under the auspices of uh, that one, you know, when the park opens, the whole world will know what he's done. And he can go out there on all the news shows and say, look what I did. You know, I did this incredible thing. And so to me, and I, in the book, he dies. He gets ripped apart. It's actually really brutal. So when he showed up in Jurassic World, as you know, as this, you know, he's back at, at Jurassic Park, well, Jurassic World, and you know, he's he's taken the dinosaurs to the next level. He's made the dinosaurs. Obviously, everybody knows what he did, and now he's created a, a you know a hybrid um, dinosaur. I actually always thought that was pretty in line with his characterization, because again, he dies in the book. Mm -hmm. So I always thought, well, if you didn't if you didn't die, 
I could absolutely see somebody that has a real thirst for kind of celebrity almost mm. to, to do that. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, I've heard other people say he's kind of a mad scientist. I don't know. I mean, I think at least in, in the first Strats World film, just the first one, I wouldn't necessarily call him mad scientist. I would say he's somebody that yeah. uh, he's pushing the envelope. He may be pushed a little too hard, but he also has one of my favorite lines of, of any of the films, and I think it's a line that Crichton would have been pretty happy with, and it reminds me of version 4.4, because obviously the whole conceit with Jurassic World is, you know, these are genetically engineered dinosaurs, so, like, anybody that's saying, oh, dinosaurs had feathers, this, that, and the other thing, like, the film has a natural out, and they never really brought it up until Jurassic World, where, you know, Mizrani... It's, just, it's such a cool scene that Mizrani talks about, you know, after the Indominus escapes, and he's like, he's blaming Wu. He's like, what the hell did you create and this and that? Wu's like, you didn't ask for reality. Like, there's mm -hmm. no reality here. Mm -hmm. Everything in here is fake. I mean, I can't remember exactly what he says, but that whole, that whole, that whole thing is basically version 4.4. Now you're right. Yes. It's, yeah, you're it's, right. You're it's, right. It's, it's, um, it's inverted because, yeah, in the book, it's Wu saying they're too dangerous. We can slow them down. And in this, he's saying, well... You told me to do this, so I did it. Yes. So, so it's it's different, but I I do think the I think what Colin did there obviously gave the film an out for why the dinosaurs are still scaly, yeah, and why there's a genetic hybrid running around. But I do I do really think that's from Crichton. I mean that that is to me a pretty logical thing. Now, obviously, what the rest of the what the rest of the trilogy did with Wu, I have. Uh, I have more thoughts on it. I, yeah, I was really on board with what they did with him in the first one. I do think it's a little strange. His trajectory doesn't um, doesn't quite make any sense to me. Uh, I, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's. I, I, I'd love to ask Colin why. Yeah, why Wu went the way he did. It's a little weird in the later films. So but, we've. I've got a headcanon thing too. I think at the end of the first movie, he got abandoned on the island. And so he must have gone uh, insane or something like that, fending for himself, waiting for somebody to come and rescue him. And somehow he was able to, I don't know, use cloning to, to uh, you know, like the, the professor on Gilligan's Island, use cloning to somehow survive and then uh, <laughs> through, through uh, animals that he created. And then he has this disassociation. And when he finally gets back to the main world, I don't know how it plays out. But there's got to be something there. There's a big reason why <laughs> he, he has such well, a different perspective. Yeah. The weird part of Jurassic World to me is that at the end of the film, Wu gets lifted off in a helicopter and says, my, my deal is still in place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my problem is like, we never do find out what was the, who was he dealing with? Like, mm -hmm. I thought Dominion was going to bring up that he was working with Biosyn the whole time. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be really cool. That would have been great to find out, okay, this is all, this all clicks. He made the Indominus because Ms. Ronnie asked him but he really was working with Biosyn, and this is an inside job. That's where I thought they were going to go. But instead, in Dominion, he has a, a redemption arc, and, well, we don't need to talk again. Dominion is, <laughs> a, Dominion is a fun movie with a lot of problems. I, I, I don't know. The story really, I think, got away, got away from them with that mm -hmm. film. Uh, we get, finally, a camouflaging right. dinosaur in Jurassic World that we uh, got in the second book. Camouflaging Carnotaurus yep. was uh, became a camouflaging in, Indominus Rex. Uh, the, that there's a whole line about when they go to the uh, Tyrannosaurus paddock and everybody's like, "Oh my god, I can't wait to see the biggest Tyrannosaur ever" or something like that. Uh, that uh, Hammond yeah. is like, "They've come to see the danger." 
and that element that mm -hmm. the people are inspired and eager to come and see the dinosaurs is because there's something dangerous about them. And I think that that is the motivation to create a world where building something like an Indominus Rex is a natural progression. And so I think that was a that was something that's a an extrapolation that is believable out of the the, the first novel. And of course, um, the abuse of technology, the biggest thing that they adapted from, from the, you know, was from Crichton's introduction. Yeah. Warning against unregulated biotechnology, working whimsically and in secrecy and in hasty pursuit of profits. And so Jurassic World's militarization of dinosaurs is certainly a bad idea, but isn't, you know, it's in alignment with Crichton's warning that somebody's going to get a crazy idea and do it because nothing's going to stop them. And then, then we get a crazy idea just like that. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. I got two other things for you. Cool. Uh, one, yeah, one of them is that, at least in the books, the way that Crichton describes Jurassic Park is, is very different from the what Spielberg and the production team did with the film. You know, they really went with the um, old school Safari Lodge designs, and that's it's really quite different from what Crichton described. And in the book, the main visitor center is described as a really high tech building with mm -hmm. you know metal struts and glass, and it's just pure glass, and um, you know it, it's it has a very high tech feel yeah. and that's like the direct opposite. Uh, the film feels nothing like that. And yeah. I, I think that Jurassic World did a much better job at, it's kind of a marriage of the two because Jurassic World definitely has some, some cues from Jurassic Park. It's not full, you know, sci not science fiction, but it's not full like high tech, but there's a lot more glass, you know, the visitor air center, but the whole control room, like everything feels more high tech. Mm -hmm. uh, you got holograms, you know, you got glass everywhere. Like, I just think the whole design is, is much closer to what, you know, Jurassic Park was supposed to be this high-tech thing. And yeah. uh, I just feel like, I feel like Jurassic World feels much more, not only, you know, it's, it's not futuristic, but it's, it's like, two, you know, it's like two years in the future. It's just, it's just slightly in the future. <laughs> and I think that works a lot better for me. I for think sure. I, I really like the design. I really get the imagery uh, that it's out of like Silicon Valley, the visitor center is supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. something like that, that the uh, landscaping has been... It's been, I think there's meant to be like a Japanese aesthetic in terms of like, but yeah. then the, this, the, the park itself is supposed to be like an African game reserve. And so those yeah. three different, I mean, they're different uh, aesthetics, but I think that's the way to envision it uh, authentically with the novel. And you're right. The, yeah. the Jurassic World, when they show the layout for the actual park, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like that whole, yeah, it's, it's awesome. really amazing where they show all the, the, the concession stands and it looked like a functioning like amusement park. And it was Same wonderful part. that you yeah. never got that impression in the novel. That part doesn't exist. The, how they monetize or commercialize or make any money on the island <laughs> doesn't really come up at all. But Jurassic World no. captures that really well, amazingly well. Yeah. No, yeah, Jurassic, yeah, that's one of the things I always love watching the Jurassic Park and going, okay, this is this is cool, but, like, how are you going to financially make any of this make sense? You have a visitor <laughs> center, and, like, <laughs> that's, like, it. Like, there's not even a hotel, so, like, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny to me when people are like, oh, yeah, Jurassic Park felt so much more real, and I'm like, no, it didn't. That, that park makes no sense. Even in the book, it's a little bit, you're a little bit stretched to believe it. I mean, the book does have a little bit more going on to it with the tennis courts and the... The, the hotel and the restaurant stuff, but mm -hmm. yeah, no, um, Jurassic World feels much more realistic as far as a bar. And like I said, I think it does fit Crichton a little, like the description of this, this high techness that the first movie just doesn't have. Yeah, uh, the other, the other thing we already talked about, you know, the aviary gets obviously gets brought into Jurassic Park three. It's also in, um, Jurassic World. So mm -hmm. that's another connection. 
Um, and again, it's much more high tech looking and you know futuristic looking. I think that's certainly you know more in line with with the book. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the other thing. All right. Oh well. Okay. The fun thing we I mentioned it earlier. Um, total small thing, but um, the missile launcher that blows away one of the raptors in Jurassic World. And I can't remember which raptor it is. That is the exact missile launcher that's described in the book. Okay. So that is a fun. Yeah, and it blows away a raptor uh, in a PG version. You know, in a PG film, it's it? not doesn't blow it apart like it does in the book. I'm but, trying to picture. It's an LAW. It's a laser assisted. Yeah, it's a law. What does it stand for? I don't remember. Uh, I believe it's laser assisted weapon. Okay. But I could be wrong. I'm not okay. a military expert. I just know that is the exact, gu- you know, gun. Okay. That, uh, Good for them. Frightened hat. Good for them. Oh yeah, I like that. I thought that was really cool. And in terms um, of uh, extrapolating from the aviary to include the water park with the mosasaur, I think yeah. that was a creative license that is in alignment with what they would have done. We know that there was an aviary, that that was something they were interested in. Certainly, I don't know that Isla Nublar had room for a, a water park or not, but uh, they, they found room in, in Jurassic World, so that was pretty cool. I, I think that's a natural, if we had the chance, we would do this, so that makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wish you saw that water park more. I think there's a lot. When when you get the, the shot through the door, when Gray opens up the, uh, the doors and you get that amazing shot of, you know the park it's yeah. like yeah i really think i it's like i always think man you could have done so many cool set pieces with you know a, a dinosaur in a water park or or things like that it, it, i wish that movie was almost a two-parter i, I just <laughs> i could have spent a lot more time on on in that version of uh dress well that's again like i said if they ever do a spin-off that would even be kind of you could even do something like camp cretaceous but make it more realistic mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. a couple people that were stuck you know on the island um, and and make it more you know scary and mm-hmm. have them or just surviving that day that things went awry you know just mm-hmm. a, a story from another perspective yeah. instead of perspective yeah. yeah yeah there's a lot you could do with it there's definitely a lot you could do with that um, that the movies haven't done but all right uh, if you're ready we should probably get on the phone kingdom eh you got it um, Crichton's interest in employing a mystery emerges again in this movie I, I think a big part of the novel was this mystery building we got to solve this problem it's drawing us to the island and the second book is the same thing where are these dinosaurs coming from we got to find this lost world we're drawn to this and this is the first time in the Jurassic World franchise maybe at all uh, where where a mystery begins to pull the character you know at least the narrative and so that's in the the origins of Maisie it's uh, it's not a quest that she's on but at least mystery returns. <laughs> and I think that's important. That's a big part of what makes a, a Crichton story. We're, we're curious to find out and, and pursuing what's going on here. And I think that that was important. And so it was good to see that return in this film, I think. Um, is is she... It seems like she discovers the truth about her, her ancestry while escaping the Indoraptor. She isn't, like, pursuing the truth in that respect. But in the end, was she a clone or was she... Was it... Parthena genetically created by yeah, her mother. What was the explanation um, in the end there? Boy, uh, you know what? Um, <laughs> I've seen Dominion twice, and uh, I'm still pretty confused. Yeah, don't I? Yeah, again, I, I think Dominion is. Um, man, I don't know. The more I think about Dominion, the more I like. It's kind of almost become the lost world. Not that it's. I, it's. It's an infinitely watchable film with great performance, really good set pieces, mm-hmm. and, and amazing for the most part. At least the CGI effects are really good. But mm-hmm. the more I think about Dominion, the more I think it's kind of a train wreck. Yeah, my critique of Dominion yeah. is only this. Like, we watched it, and it was totally watchable, but, like, you can't think it about is. it. Yeah. You almost can't think of any of it. Like, if you think about any part of it, 
you're going to have trouble. And so you can't, it's tough to chat about a movie or talk about a movie that you can't think about because it doesn't work. And that, that's... No, yeah, the only... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it looked cool. I, I, like, you could sit down and at the end you say, I saw the movie. And, I mean, that's true. And it was neat. I, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird because I... It is weird. I, um... Yeah, let's go back. So Fallen, Fallen Kingdom, Kingdom, yes. <laughs> yeah, with Maisie at least... Uh, at least at the end of Fallen Kingdom, the assumption is she's a clone of her mother. Her mother passed away, and and um, yeah, that was the thing. She's a clone, which they should have stuck with. Yeah, the it, it's very strange what they did with. But um, <laughs> as far as like the the mystery element of that and, and that whole storyline, yeah, I really like it. I think it's cool. I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think it's it was good to have a mystery again. I think the I think Fallen Kingdom actually has even more things that they kind of. They're very small, but there's a lot they pull from the book with that. I mean, the whole thing with John Locke would be pulled in. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. that character is not in the book, but Hammond did have a partner in the book, and mm-hmm. actually, it was Wu's. Uh, it was basically Wu before Wu existed. It was Wu's yeah. um, Wu's mentor, Norman, mentor. Now, he, Norman yeah. Atherton. That's right. And he dies in the book, and that's why Wu is brought in. But I mean, he does work with Hammond. Like Hammond knows that you know that person. I I thought that was pretty cool. I thought the way that they brought in a partner for him and you know colin talked about how and you know the whole reason that all the facilities underneath a lockwood manor exist is that's where you know the cloning first happened mm-hmm. and that's where like the baby elephants were and you know all that stuff is really cool and again it's definitely inspired by the book i mean it's not you know directly pulled from the book but but it you know it's there if you want to see it i think the idea of the genetic engineering becoming much more of a forefront thing you know one of the reasons i I really like the Maisie storyline is because that's the ultimate, depending on how you look at it, that's the ultimate misuse of genetic technology, yes. right? The idea of cloning a human being uh, because your, your child dies is kind of, I mean, that is absolutely like, like a Crichton uh, mm-hmm. plot line. That's I a taboo Crichton for sure, for sure. Would have really liked that, yeah. That's why I'm really disappointed with what they did with it because I think, I think the idea of somebody that's a clone there's a lot there that you can mine, you know, for drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the idea, the implication of, of what that would do to a person's mental state is huge. I mean, you could spend a whole series on just Maisie and what, what she would go through with that. Uh, and it kind of, it threw it all away, but yeah, I mean, all that stuff's great. I think, uh, you know, the destruction of the Island in the, in the, in the book, mm-hmm. Nublar's carpet bombed, uh, and in the film yeah. it explodes on a volcano. So, I guess there's connectivity yeah. there too. Uh, Jurassic Park, Isla Sorna was a sea mount off of volcanic activity from once upon a time. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of envision Jurassic Park as being like a really large, almost dormant volcano in that like you've mm-hmm. got this rim around the edge and then the, the park is in the valley inside. I don't know how authentic that is to, to actually being like a volcanic crater or something like that, but that's the way I like to picture it. But nonetheless... That it has volcanic origins, very important, and uh, and, mm-hmm. that, and I think that was important with uh, all five of the islands. So when he when he writes the second book, he creates an ch- island chain, all volcanic activity. Yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of a neat. What what else could happen on this island? Well, the, vo- the volcano could erupt. That could be fun. Yeah. So I, you're right. That's a yeah. good part of it too. Well, and the thing is, in the book, you know, one of the other things is that Hammond runs everything off geothermal power. So mm-hmm. the idea of yep. the volcano. I thought bringing that into Fallen Kingdom made all all the sense mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, it's 
a really cool idea. I love Fallen Kingdom. That's that's actually my favorite next to the first movie. I really love love that film. Mm-hmm. There's some stu- there's some questionable stuff in it. I think it's very uh, very Crichtony. Just the, the whole film. The other thing too is Eli Mills is a character that really reminds me of some of like what Crichton's talking points. I mean, yep. Again, he's really the pure capitalist. I mean, you know, Auction and the dinosaurs wanted to sell him to the military. You know, the whole thing you get when he when he has the Claire and Owen in, in the jail cell and is is basically like, Hey, I could just I just shoot you both. I mean, you're you're already <laughs> dead. I actually wish he, he had. I wish they had gone farther and that he actually killed one of them. I thought it would have been thought it would have kind of interesting if he shot one and then gets taken out as he's gonna shoot you know, maybe he shoots Owen and and then as he's gonna shoot Claire, the Indoraptor kills him or at least attacks. But that character is very much you know, he kinda he also like um in the book, Dachshund is is a you know he's a psychopath in the book. Yeah. I mean he tries to kill Claire, uh, not Claire, um, Sarah, Sarah Harding. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so I think there's you could argue there's a little bit of Mills being mine there. And um, yeah, Mills is an interesting character. I I, I think he's more Dachshund even Dachshund and end up being. Uh, yeah. You're so <laughs> right about this. You're so right. There's um. So in the beginning of the book, he talks about how people are whimsically using biotechnology without supervision. They're doing it in secrecy because I guess you need to hide what you're doing until you're ready to show that it's uh, profitable. And they're doing it for money. And so Biosyn's doing it. But for what it's worth, I think that description of the biotech industry is basically also the description of the character of John Hammond. And so he's mm-hmm. keeping everything a secret. He's doing it for profit. He's doing this whimsical thing. And then you're right, Eli Mills he carries on that tradition that was in, in you know so important in the first book to even for it to work and so you're absolutely right and then because of this we're entering into a new world and the in in this crossing this threshold of where uh, biotechnology has been released by irresponsible and unregulated people and and that's where you get the similar line about crossing paradigms from the novel and then you get it in in the cameo from uh, Ian Malcolm uh, yeah, and yeah, so they're, they're directly connected. Without without the Eli Mills, you don't get the Ian Malcolm cameo, and then you don't get the Dominion, mm-hmm. or they you don't get the characters on the you don't get dinosaurs on the mainland, which they've been so reluctant to do through the whole film franchise. And so his line in yeah. uh, the which one do I have here? In the book is about entering a new paradigm. Quote: All major changes are like death. You can't see the other side until you're there, which is a simile that mm-hmm. we can all relate to. We, you know, it's hard to know what's on the other side. And, uh, and so yeah. this dangerous consequential threshold that you need to pass through into a complete unknown is very unnerving. And so that's the, 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 the I guess the feeling we're supposed to take with us as, as, um, biotechnology is released on, on the, on the earth. And then in the film where he's, I guess, testifying to Congress, uh, he says, changes like death, you don't know what it's like until you're standing at the gates. Yeah, it's the same idea. Now that the dinosaurs are on the mainland, uh, here we are, and who knows what we're going to get. And I think that's a quintessential Malcolm as well, that this chaos theory, this unpredictable nature of everything uh, really comes to a point when you get to these these paradigm shifts. And so I think that was... Yeah, that's such a good part of the movie, and it's such an important part of the book. And I think you make a great point that Eli Mills is the agent that makes it happen, just like Hammond was the agent that makes it happen in the novel. That's incredible. Yeah, Mills is a character I really enjoy. He's very Crichton-y to me, and I, I also he's just very believable to me. Like mm-hmm. it's a character that 
absolutely works. He's he's not exactly all there up, upstairs. I also like that he kills someone. I think that's cool. <laughs> nice to have a murder, you know. You know, the problem with uh, that movie is if he actually survived it, I'm not sure what the next day would be because he he murders someone he's not related to. So <laughs> I don't know what his plan was as far as like, I mean, he's basically just an employee. So it's like your boss, you kill your boss and like think you're going to get his money. It's a, it's a little... Yeah, I don't gonna know. Gonna get if, the money. I don't know if Lockwood um, was like he had a conservator to his estate for the transition of power yeah, and pending death. Like Eli Mills feels like could. he was. I don't know if he's described as that, but he feels like he was the guy that will help. Help. Well, yeah. Transition. If, if he had, if he had power of attorney, mm-hmm. that would actually make sense. But they don't spell that out. So that's <laughs> the only thing I don't like is like, they never say like why does Mills think that murdering? I mean, he murders him at that moment because he wants a sale to keep going. So maybe his plan was, well, I'll kill him, I'll get all the money, and I'm gonna go to like Mexico where there's no extradition. <laughs> you know that that could make sense, right? I guess, but I mean, he dies, so it doesn't matter. But that is kind of a plot, like a plot hole, or not maybe not a plot hole, but it's something that I wish like there should have been a line of dialogue to, to you know, to answer that. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of like Maisie's uh, surrogate mom also disappears in mm-hmm. the third act of the movie, and that's a little, that's yeah. a little strange. I guess she was actually supposed to be killed. Uh, the Indoraptor was going to tear her apart, and they cut the scene. Really? And um, yeah, yeah, and it. It's stupid because they should have shot that or at least showed it something because it is kind of the the, the joke of the Jurassic movies that somebody always disappears in the third act. You know, and that one, it's her in, the, in um, Jurassic World, Barry. Barry just disappears in the third act. <laughs> you know, yeah, in Lost World, you have Nick Van Olen disappearing in the third act. So, yeah, everybody, somebody always disappears in the everybody third act. Everybody but Malcolm in the first, second one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very strange and... Uh, <laughs> That they always they can they consistently do that. Well, you make a good point. Like so, once we get to Dominion, there are a couple thematic, I guess, references that are are pretty close to the source material. But I mean, we the journey is far removed from the first island in the, back in '93. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the the raptors are heroes now; they're no longer the villains. Yeah. Which uh, Tyrannosaurus is the hero now; it's no longer the villain. I guess Tyrannosaurus has been the hero for a long time now. <laughs> Um, to be fair, he was kind of the hero in the first movie too. That's true. I mean, he does, right. he does save them. So I know that. Yeah, that's the same T Rex. And I find that Dominion made more of a, a an attempt to make an homage or, or, or reference the first film than it ever did to reference the first book, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know. You know what? I'd have to watch Dominion again because I actually mm-hmm. thought it was kind of. Um, there wasn't. I couldn't pick up. I didn't pick up a ton of like homages to any of the other films. Whereas like Fallen Kingdom has some really clear ones. Mm-hmm. And maybe not the other films. Like literally the first film. I think, like Jeff Goldblum and yeah. I think, uh, Grant. Like well, so those, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I thought. I thought the Amber yeah. Mines to bring them back in Dominion was pretty cool. Uh, they've been a big part mm-hmm. of Amber, and I thought building that. Uh, what did they call it? It wasn't the sanctuary. It was. Um, Biosyn's. No, it's like the Biosyn facility, but yeah. I, yeah, I can't remember what the name of it was. It was a cool ass facility, though. Yeah. It was a really cool piece of uh, design work they did for the movie. And on top of the Amber Mines, I thought was really neat. I thought that was a, mm-hmm. a fun connection. Yeah. So this is a good one. I like this one in, in particular. So we, when Claire arrives at whatever that station was uh, in, in the facility and she'd been stalked by the Dilophosaurus. And you can hear them like hooting yeah. in the bushes all around her and stuff like that. Hooting in the bu- yeah, that the was bushes. way more like what Nedry had when he was stalked in the novel than than what was portrayed in the yeah. film. And I thought that a that was 
probably for me the scariest moment in the whole thing when you don't see them you know they're there you know what they do and you can hear them all around her and she's all by herself i thought that was maybe the scariest to me uh most successfully scary part of the film the rest of it was like an adventure really? but you got to read off of what the characters are doing the characters never seemed scared they always just seemed like they were just i don't know avengers right but in that moment where Claire um, is like defenseless, she was horrified, and you feel it in that moment. Well, maybe not, when the plane crashed as well, I think when she was saying goodbye. I was goodbye. about to say, my, yeah, mine would be the plane with the blind. Uh, I can never say that dinosaur's name, but the blind ostrich I thought was yeah was pretty. Um, I thought that was actually for me at least was just scary. Like I thought that was a really well done sequence. Right. I think yeah. and the creature design really cool. Claire might have had the best scenes in in the last. She film. did. She might have yeah. had all the best. No, her, her moment in the airplane saying goodbye Claire. to Grady was, I think, really, really well done before she ejected. Her landing yeah. in the bushes with the Therizinosaur mm-hmm. was really well done. I thought that was... She she was great in that. Yeah. Her... Uh, we'll get to the next one. Because <laughs> I think there's another great moment to the book that was uh, she gets to do as well. But the Dilophosaur horror, I think, was really, really specifically written to be more close to, to what happened in the novel. And uh, I keep getting this image in my head of Nedry being attacked at a construction site. Would you know what I mean by that? Well, yeah, it's actually in the original script. He did get so what the the first I think it's the first or the second script. He was actually in a construction site when he gets attacked. That's that right. He's in a, one of it. There's a, uh, there's concept art of it actually is of there? the construction yard. Right. And so in my head, I keep oh. seeing it, but it wasn't in the novel. Uh-huh. It's not in the movie. That there's uh, oh. in the script. It's like there's a. Uh, it's just a. It's called an equipment graveyard filled with tractors and mm-hmm. cement mixers and things like that. And that's oh. where he's ambushed. And in any case, mm-hmm. that that never happened that's to cool, anybody. But uh, but yeah, I thought no. this Dilophosaur scene was really cool. And then when Grady grabs it by the throat, I was like, ah, that's pretty cool too. I, that part I was okay with. And that, for whatever uh, quality of the puppets for <laughs> for the Dilophosaurus, uh, yeah. <laughs> I still I, thought that that scene was I, uh, really well done. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, I'm gonna hold my yeah. We we talked about the puppets on the podcast. I think we did. Hopefully that wasn't in part three. I don't uh, think he, we lost. But, you didn't get to the Demetrodons. Uh, I don't think, which is a shame. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? See here, I'll tell you what. The, the, that's one of my favorite pieces. Like I love that animal, and I love that sequence. And I think I think that one's helped because they're in the dark, and so it's a lot harder to to pick them apart. But mm-hmm. I, I do I do have to say overall. Dominion reminds me of the new Star Wars movies where like they're purposely trying to be like, hey, look at us. We're Star Wars from the 70s. These are animatronics. And you can tell from three miles away. Like these are not real animals. They are <laughs> they are puppets. And and Dominion feels like that. It's like, man, I didn't know we were watching the Jim Henson film. Like this is these are not, they, they are honestly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but they are some of the worst puppets. Like I, I wish they had done full CGI. They should have gotten rid of all. I don't know how Colin watched those and, and those dailies and was like, "Yeah, we're just gonna leave it." Like, they, get rid of like, just get rid of like those Dilophosaurus puppets. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. They're truly terrible. I, I, I agree. That scene is scary until you see the puppet, and then it's like, oh god, oh, god. <laughs> it's, a, it's a puppet. The yeah, awful. The only one that looks good is the Giganotosaurus. That is the only one that looks okay. Yeah, I think the rest are terrible. It was the, good. The, the Metrodons, the, they're okay until you kind of fully see them, and then there's some really strange CGI with those two. Like yeah, yeah. I I don't know if it was COVID or what, but for a movie that got delayed a full year, they <laughs> I think they really put the bed on those animatronics they're all awful when the giganotosaurus was Ugh. tracking them around the uh the car that was cool that, that i think cool. that was really really well done as well 
That was that was a powerful moment yeah. where there. I mean, there's a lot of people to be hiding, but <laughs> it was still pretty good. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my brother was watching with me, and he goes, this is uh, this looks really cool, but this makes absolutely no sense. And I'm like, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's it's kind of, um, there's like, it, Dominion is such a mixed bag. There's, there's some really cool stuff and some really silly stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, kind of unfortunate. Like, the Giga design, and I think the Giga is scary as hell. And it has scary sequences. Like, there's, like when it's attacking the observation, it just rips that thing apart. Mm-hmm. Is really cool, and, and it's all well done. But it, yeah, it, there's some weird stuff too. Like you said, it, when it circles them, it's like I don't know what it's doing, but it's <laughs> it looks great, but it's not acting like an animal. It, I well, I should say that though, because to be fair, you know, it's it knows it's bigger than them, and it's maybe just. Mm-hmm. investigating so i shouldn't say that that's not really fair well you know how puppies go at uh if you put a treat you put a treat in the ball and the puppy just yeah, rolls yeah, around yeah, trying to get inside so that's not that's not yeah. crazy so there's <laughs> one other part from the novel that i think was adapted into this film as well and see what you think maybe i'm just drawing conclusions where they don't exist but there's a scene where sattler has climbed up to the roof of the visitor center and a raptor chases her she sprints across the roof and leaps into a swimming pool that she never got to do in the first film. And it's uh, her, she's playing decoy, then when the raptors come after her, she has to get away. And so there's this incredible moment where she leaps as far as she possibly could, beyond what was humanly possible, and astonishes herself, landing in the pool, and continues to escape from these raptors, and therefore drawing their attention away so that the other people can like um, get the power back on or something like that. Which... I think when Claire is being chased by the Atrocia Raptors and she has an incredible stunt where she leaps from one building into the next, I got to think that that must be connected to, to what happened in the novel as well. Finally, they had a chance to, to make that scene come to the, the big screen. What do you think? I mean, it's entirely possible, but I feel like you might be reaching. You think so? But it, it is entirely. It, I, yeah, it feels... Again, it's entirely possible. Uh, but you, might, you also might be making like a connection where there isn't one because mm-hmm. it's also just a cool. I don't know. I get more Indiana Jones from that than I do <laughs> the novel. But uh, it's a great scene. It uh, is. The Atreus Raptors are a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, they actually that that whole sequence is probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, other than some stuff that happens with the the Therizinosaur. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Possible. Well, that was a that was a cool stunt. Um, it looked really good on film, and uh, oh, that's yeah. just how I picture what they would have done had they done the the Sattler scene. Because you know yeah. she didn't get to do all the great stuff that she got to do in the book, and I wonder if that was just one of those par- parts that somebody said, "Ah, we, we got to get to this at some point." Yeah, no, I, I mean Claire Claire's a great character. I, I think of all of all the characters in the franchise, Claire is probably my favorite. Like I, I really like Claire. I think I think through the three films, they they did a good job of at least given that character an arc. I think Owen too is pretty consistent through the, the you know, the, the trilogy uh, series of films. Mm-hmm. Those, those two characters. They, uh, if you didn't have anything else, I was going to mention, I think the locust plot line. That's the last part I wanted to get to. You're, we're on the same page. Yeah. Man. Okay. I think that's, I think that's really good. It's very Crichton. I, I was mm-hmm. really happy with it. I think they should have gone further though, because it's a plot line that just, they start out really good with this whole like, oh, it's biosyn. Like I really thought that first like two thirds of the movie I think are great. Um, actually, I really like. And the third act falls apart for me, but I I liked the the biosyn being you know the idea of them genetically engineering these these locusts to just everybody else. You have to buy their food. Yeah. 
is is so Crichton, and it's it's not exactly the same. But but in the book, Dachshund does talk about the idea of engine. I'll make little pet dinosaurs, and you'll have to feed them engine food. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not a little different, but I mean that's straight out of the book. It just doesn't go anywhere. That's the problem. Is that mm-hmm. the, the plot line is taken, and then it just it just doesn't go anywhere. And then it's like. I mean, don't get me started on, like, Maisie, because that makes no sense. Like, no. somehow they got to kidnap Maisie, because her blood will... Her and uh, yeah, Beta's blood. Know. Somebody needs to, like... <laughs> I, it's, I'm sorry, but... For what it's worth, that locust bit, I think, um, there's this, I, like, it was blown up way out of proportion, just so that it would work in terms of the timeline of the film. But this idea that mm-hmm. you might introduce some sort of parasite that might... That yeah. you could you could profit by yeah. offering a cure to is something that's entirely within the scope of like what the biotech industry might do and or at least is alluded to by Crichton that it gets out of control when they try to release it and it becomes way bigger problem like global famine uh, than they expected i think is also alluded to i know at the beginning they have the um the epigraph that says you cannot recall a new form of life and so the whole thing is yeah you once you let it, the genie out of the bag that you, who knows what may happen and life is uncontrollable life will find a way and so this idea that they let, release a plague even though they thought they had like a tiny little thing that's going to you know boost their profits in the third quarter instead becomes yeah a global pro- issue and, and i thought that is entirely the the caution that that Crichton was doing that but, but Crichton didn't have two different stories in his novel <laughs> where he's like we got dinosaurs yeah. and then there's all these other things that could happen too well i think the problem with dominion is that for me, at least, was that I don't think you needed to separate Maisie from Owen and Claire. Like it, the w- the way they make her the the MacGuffin for those two characters to chase after mm-hmm. is to me is the problem. I don't think you had to do that. You could have kept them together and just had them investigating the locust plot on their own, and then you know, or what they could have done is just had them you know investigating these poachers and like found out the poachers worked for Biosyn and then they were gonna. Mm-hmm steal these animals and sell them in the black market. There's so many ways they could have done that and kept the locust plot line and had it be part of that without directly tying that to Maisie. Because I think the, I think that's where the movie just falls mm-hmm. apart. Because it makes no fucking sense. There's no way that that plot line makes any sense. The no. idea that her blood would somehow affect the locust is so stupid. <laughs> and it's just, and it robs that character that character was so much more interesting when she was a clone. Mm-hmm. And to, to do like, but yeah, she's like the Jesus Christ miraculous birth. Like, I don't want to step on anybody's religious toes, but I really hate what they, they, they did. Where they took a very cool Crichton-y thing mm-hmm. and made it stupider than hell. And uh, yeah, sorry, like I said. Uh, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Dominion is, 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 a, is a, a fun movie with really cool set pieces that just does not have the story to back those up. Well, here's a big question. But yeah, anyway. Is there anything that's left in the novel that you're like, boy, they haven't done this and they should have by now? I want to see Ed Regis. I think that the Roberta Carter at the beginning, there's that, that, you're right, the babies and the bassinets. There's a bunch of cool elements that are in these books that we haven't got to. Is there stuff that you would like to see if if, uh, the franchise were to survive? See, the problem is, it's like now the franchise is so (laughs) Complicated, yeah. I don't think there's much you can pull from the book anymore because like the, all the stuff I would say, you can't do it anymore. Like I, you know what, actually to be honest, what I, what I would do from that angle 
is I would want to see like a full on reboot, like a remake mm-hmm. of Jurassic Park. Get get um someone else to come in and just redo the film and make it make it a darker, grittier, violent film. Make it make it more what the book was, you know, really don't hold back. And maybe do a two parter. Do you know, instead of trying to cram that whole thing into one film, do a two parter where you can really do all the storyline, you know, do the thriller storyline, do the, the, t- the clicking t- uh, clock. Wait. You know, you could even do the, the first film, like, ends where the, there's raptors in the boat. And, wait, and um, I get the, the be- here's the coup de grace. You know what, what makes it work? Instead of it being mm-hmm. a film in the 90s trying to be futuristic, it could be a film mm-hmm. from the 2030s that's going retro to the 90s. Oh, ret- retro to the 90s? You could what, do that. That you would be so I mean, cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah, I can do a lot with it. I guess, I guess, uh, I guess my whole thought is just the only the only way to really pull from the book now is to do a um, mm-hmm. yeah, is to do like a full on uh, remake because because one one thing that I think Colin did do and the extended cut did and Fallen Kingdom certainly did was was bring bring a level of, of violence and brutality with the dust. You know, I mean, Eli Mills gets just ripped apart. You know, and uh, and characters get arms ripped off, and it's all in camera. And they, I actually still can't believe they got away with a lot of that stuff. But <laughs> um, there's some really cool stuff in the extended edition that makes Dominion a lot more fun, as far as the, so like, I don't know. That's the one thing. Like Jurassic Park is actually pretty scary. Like there's some yes. scary stuff with the raptors, but like it could have been even more. Like a lot of my favorite stuff from the book is, you know, Nedry's death scene is incredible. Um, Arnold being hunted in the uh, power room is incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the compies. Uh, yeah, eating babies is great. Like, a lot of my favorite stuff is the genetic engineering aspect and then the the violence that kind of goes along with it. And, and it's really not to be found in, in the first film, you know? And I think with the other thing is nowadays, you could do a Jurassic Park and show more dinosaurs. And get it closer to the book because there's like 10 minutes of them in a the movie. <laughs> and all the early scripts had more dinosaurs. And I think I think if you did, you can do more dinosaurs and still make it terrifying. If you can get an R-rated, no holds bar, really well thought out film. Like I I love what Spielberg, you know, Spielberg's Jurassic Park is classic. That's why we're here talking about this. Like he did an incredible job, but when he was bidden for the rights, James Cameron was also one of the rights to Jurassic Park. Oh. Huh? Can you imagine? Yeah. And and that's the thing. If you look at James Cameron as a filmmaker, I do think his sensibilities would have given us a more adult Jurassic Park. And so, like, give me the uh, James Cameron cut of Jurassic Park, you know? That's what I want. I want that alternate reality Jurassic Park. So yeah, that's what I would do. Well, I, I know. It. That's a long way to answer, but no, no, no. I, I love it. I love it. it. Uh, what could yeah. have been? Well, I got to tell you, um, I appreciate this so much. I know we're out of time. Uh, what can people look <laughs> yeah. forward to on the Missing Copies podcast? What uh, in the next little bit? That's coming up next. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, a consistent release schedule. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, like I said, we're going to do the Prey review today, actually, later. I'm going to record it, hopefully get that out. Um, we're going to do the ex- 
extended cut for Dominion Review later in the month. Nice. And other than that, I'm, you know, Jurassic Park obviously is kind of done. Uh, we're going to do our thoughts on the last season of Kent Cretaceous. We've got that hopefully coming out. And um, the podcast really is a, a creature movie podcast. We've, we've focused on Jurassic, but now that, that it's kind of done, I think we're going to try to get back to doing more stuff with, you know, some of the other creature stuff that's coming out. Um, Game of, well, not Game of, House of the Dragon, uh, Lord of the Rings. Those are both things that I, I'm I'm trying to find someone to co-host with me on. I'd really like to do a, to kind of have, do a podcast with a, following one of these TV series. Um, so that's something, uh, you know, might, might happen. Otherwise, yeah, I think we're going to just start doing a lot of, you know, movies from the past, hopefully monster movies. I'd like to do a thing on the thing. Uh, I think that'd be really fun. So yeah, I don't know, lots of stuff hopefully, but just bear with me. It's hard. I got <laughs> puppies. I work, you know, 70 hours a week. Well, thank you we for got... the what precious time you do have. I appreciate you coming coming back. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Hopefully everybody enjoys listening to us ramble. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks so much. Good luck uh, with the with the podcast tonight, and uh, I look forward to it. A big thank you to Justin Kiley for coming back on the podcast to join us for another episode. I know how hard it is to, to find the time to do things like this sometimes, yeah, especially over the summer and when things are busy. So thank you very much. This week's text is Big Rex, spanning from pages 144 to 149. In a synopsis, they arrive at the Tyrannosaur paddock, and the shy and sensitive Big Rex is baited with a goat. And then we get to learn all about Robert Muldoon, who thinks that dinosaurs are a little too dangerous to have in a park environment. And then we watch the Rex eat a goat. Characters, Richard Kiley, the voice, continues the tour. And his voice is activated as they reach the Tyrannosaur paddock, by, which must indicate that the Tyrannosaur is nearby, as we learned earlier, because the motion sensors inform the CD-ROM when to activate pre-recordings. We're told on 144. Mysteriously, the voice recording knows when the Tyrannosaurus exits the field as well and offers a salutation as they depart. Ladies and gentlemen, Tyrannosaurus Rex on 149. Ed Regis. Regis reveals that the artfully described sunset landscape at the Tyrannosaur Paddock is a place he'll often escape to to just sit and reflect on page 144 as he speaks over the intercom with the other land cruiser. He tells Grant and the other riders about the Tyrannosaur, including that she is shy on 145, but he assures his guests they won't be disappointed when they see the Tyrant King. Regis wants the Rex to eat in front of them. Dr. Alan Grant, the artfully described sunset landscape doesn't impress Grant, we're told on 144. He wants to see the Tyrannosaurus and supposes that its absence is because she's off hunting the Apatosaurus they saw in the distance. Then Regis tells him about Tyrannosauruses. Listen, Regis, do you know who I am? I'm Alan Grant. I forget more about Tyrannosaurus before I go to sleep each night than you'll ever learn in your whole life. Don't you be telling me about Tyrannosaurus. In any case, that's what he's surely thinking. But what he says is, then where is she? And he learns that she hides, rarely comes out in full sunlight, possibly because she has sensitive skin and sunburns easily, which makes Grant sigh. You're destroying a lot of illusions, he says on 145. As well as Grant is waiting, Crichton returns to this motif of having Grant's senses inform what's going on. In this case, what he hears, the bleeding goat. It's insistent, frantic bleeding, and then Lex on the radio, wondering if the Rex is going to eat the goat, like in the film, and then a voice speaking to Lex before the radio is turned down by Ellie. He smells the odor, garbage stench of putrefaction and decay that drifts up the hillside. And he gets carried away with calling the Big Rex a he when he spots Big Rex. When he spots Big Rex, he realizes he's been looking too low. He begins to whisper in its presence. And he answers Malcolm's question about predation and animal behavior of big carnivores like lions and tigers. 
Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm finds something funny about the Tyrannosaur being described as shy on 145. This is certainly an unexpected quality for Tyrannosaurus, and perhaps that delights Malcolm, that the animals that were intended to shock and delight audiences are in fact shy. That's, that's chaos theory. He laughs at the thought that Tyrannosaurus might sunburn easily and have sensitive skin. When Grant calls Big Rex a he, Malcolm corrects him. She. On page 148. Malcolm too begins whispering in its presence. The dinosaur's immensity astonishes him. Malcolm wonders how long it will wait before taking the goat. Malcolm is very curious about the Tyrannosaur behavior, and Regis and Grant take turns answering his questions. And he concludes his experience as fantastic. John Hammond. They've come for the danger, says Hammond, observing the tourists who are so eager to catch a glimpse of the big wrecks on page 145. They can't wait to see it. Muldoon thinks of Hammond as a martinet. Hammond apparently had to be convinced to study the Dilophosaur venom, and only agreed after a handler was almost blinded by the venom. Hammond also resisted Muldoon's request for weapons to combat the animals when necessary on page 147. Finally, we get to really dig into Robert Muldoon. The danger is what Muldoon is afraid people are eager to see. He says on 145. He twirls the keys to the armory on his finger as he watches the monitors tensely. He shares Arnold's apprehensions with the first group of tourists entering the park. In fact, he's so nervous he goes down to the armory to get the weapons out right now and prep the gas-powered jeep because that's how uncertain he is that things are going to run smoothly out there. He feels some dinosaurs are too dangerous to be kept in a park setting, in part because they still know so little about the animals, like the Dilophosaur poison. Muldoon is the park warden and a big man, 50 years old, with a steel-gray mustache and deep blue eyes, who was born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya, working most of his life as a guide for African big-game hunters, as his father before him. Since 1980, he began working as a wildlife consultant for conservation groups and zoo designers, becoming well-known, including having an article in the London Sunday Times saying, What Robert Trent Jones is to golf courses, Muldoon is to zoos. A designer unsurpassed in knowledge and skill. Muldoon specializes in defining space and habitat requirements for lions, elephants, zebras, and hippos, identifying which animals could be kept together and which had to be separated. Muldoon's San Francisco work was considered routine, and he much preferred working at an Indian park, Tiger World, in Kashmir. As he was wishing to leave Africa, he was offered the job at Jurassic Park, where he obviously was astonished to find the park was a collection of genetically engineered prehistoric animals. Through his experience, he's developed an unblinking, unromantic view of animals that set him at odds with Jurassic Park's management in California. Muldoon worries the most about the velociraptors. He describes what happened when one escaped and says the holding pen was fit with electronic sensors to warn of other impending escapes on page 147. Or in other words, he fully expects they're going to get free again. They are natural cage breakers who have a talent for escaping. Muldoon asked for guns and specifically a shoulder-mounted LAW missile launcher. I never really knew what LAW stood for, but I can now confidently say these are light anti-tank or anti-armor weapons. These are single-shot, line-of-sight missile systems designed for infantry use. This was because taking down a 40-ton animal is nearly impossible without huge ordnance. He threatened to quit unless he could get some weapons on the island, and so management made a concession. Oh, he also was going to blackmail them or... He was going to go to the press with their story anyhow. Uh, and so management made a concession. He could have the guns, but they had to be locked up at all times. So they now have two specially built laser-guided missile launchers in a locked basement room that only he has the keys to. And Dennis Nedry is in this chapter. As Muldoon leaves for the basement, Nedry requests a Coke on page 147. Remember? Nedry's here. Don't forget about him. Donald Gennaro, he doesn't say or do much in this chapter, but he's obviously affected by the Tyrannosaur appearance, which causes him to pale and wipe his forehead. 
scared, disgusted, physically uncomfortable with watching a goat get killed. I'm not sure what it is, but he's pale and he's sweating. <laughs> Lex, she becomes very worried that the big racks will eat the goat. And Lex is disgusted by the tearing, biting, and bleeding of the goat. There was also a sickening crunch. Remember that? Tyrannosaurus. Tyrannosaurus appeared late in the dinosaur history, evolving within the final 15 million years of the 120 million year reign of the dinosaurs, we're told on page 144. The juvenile Rex is two years old, a third grown, eight feet tall, weighs a ton and a half, and is often seen down by the lagoon, which is stocked with fish. The juvenile has taught herself to catch fish by ducking her hip her whole head under the water like a bird, we're told. The big Rex, whom this chapter is named after, is full-grown. She'd be hunting apatosaurs if she could, says Regis, but she can't access the apatosaurs. She wiggles her little forearms when she's frustrated, but big Rex is presently hiding because she's a little shy, and she conceals herself as a general rule, and you never see her out in the open, especially in daylight. Jurassic Park theorizes that she may have sensitive skin and sunburn easily. The Big Rex stinks. She has a garbage stench of putrefaction and decay that precedes her. Her head is 20 feet above the ground and is half concealed among the upper branches of the palm trees. Again, 20 feet high argues for the upright, erect stance that Henry Fairfield Osborne presented in his reconstruction of AMNH 5027, as discussed in episode 16, Malcolm. That's very high in the air, higher than a giraffe's head. That's incredibly high for Tyrannosaurus, and it must be standing upright, which is an outdated reconstruction. She has a, an, quote, enormous square head, five feet long, mottled reddish-brown, with huge jaws and fangs, we're told on 148, and a muscular neck. It has an enormous body. She bites the goat through the neck, and she covers the 30 yards in, quote, four bounding steps, which is seven and a half yards per step, 22 and a half feet. To put this in perspective, you don't actually have to be moving fast to cover a lot of ground when you cover 20 feet with each stride. After silencing the goat, she appears hesitant and looks in all directions, including staring fixedly at the land cruiser on the hill. She knows that car is there. A bird chirps, which startles the Rex and causes her to be on alert, scanning the area in jerking shifts. And then she's described as moving very silently as well before she leaves with the goat to go eat in solitude. Dilophosaurus. The Dilophosaurus surprise Jurassic Park with their venom and capabilities to spit, which is said to be up to 50 feet. To put that in perspective, the Dilophosaur could be 10 feet behind a bus and hit you with its spit. Their venom has seven different toxic enzymes. They were found to be eating rodents, we're told on page 146, uh, which we'll learn later on used to be a problem on the island, having lots of rodents around. Management would like to remove the poison sacs of the Dilophosaurus, but the vets have failed twice on two different animals, and management won't allow one to be killed to perform an autopsy. Velociraptors. Muldoon worries the most about the Velociraptors. They're instinctive hunters, never pass up on prey, and kill even when they're not hungry. They kill for the pleasure of killing. They're swift, strong runners, astonishing jumpers, with lethal claws on all four limbs, capable of delivering a disemboweling swipe that can spill a man's guts. As well, powerful tearing jaws that rip flesh instead of biting, and are far more intelligent than other dinosaurs. Natural cage breakers. They're at least as intelligent as chimpanzees with agile hands capable of manipulating objects and opening doors. They can escape with ease. We have a couple of neat localities as well. We're at the Tyrannosaur Paddock. This is south of the Dilophosaurus and Triceratops, which we visited earlier. And the Land Cruisers stop at the rise of a hill overlooking a forested area sloping down to the edge of the lagoon. Further south, beyond the Tyrannosaur Paddock, Apatosaurus next can be seen. The Sauropod Paddock is there. The territory is, quote, completely enclosed with trenches and fences. 
They're disguised from view, so we can't see those things, but they are there. A hydraulic lift emerges from the ground where a tethered goat baits the Tyrannosaur to emerge. It is 30 yards from the nearest palm trees in the center of a field. That field, therefore, must be 60 yards across, and the cage bars slide down from around the goat, and they wait for quite a while to see if Big Rex will show herself. The sauropod paddock um, is where the apatosaurs are, south of the Tyrannosaur paddock, and they share the same lagoon, in which the apatosaurus' bodies are mirrored in the water's surface on 144. The atmosphere here is so convincing, one might truly believe that they've traveled back to the Mesozoic era. And Jurassic Park. That Muldoon says his perception of dangerous animals puts him at odds with the Jurassic Park management in California, especially Hammond, this suggests that the island resort is managed from the mainland, likely at the InGen offices in Cupertino, California, which is known today as part of Silicon Valley. And I think it was called Silicon Valley back then, too. I don't know that I've ever really thought about it being managed from the mainland, but um, sounds like that's what Muldoon deals with. Allusions and references. We get Robert Trent Jones. The London... Sunday Times said, quote, what Robert Trent Jones is to golf courses, Robert Muldoon is to zoos, a designer of unsurpassed knowledge and skill on 145. Jones was a prestigious, award-winning golf course architect who received the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America's highest honor and inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1987, which is right when this book was being written. So maybe he was in the news when Crichton was kind of come up, coming up with a character here. Jones was 83, year old, 83 years old when this book came out. Cage breakers. We, we learn that animals like monkeys, elephants, wild pigs, the giant armadillo, and moose are skillful cage breakers. We didn't know that before. Nature, red in tooth and claw. The idea of nature, red in tooth and claw, was wrong. Most often the prey got away, we're told on 149, says Alan Grant. This is a quote from Lord Alfred Tennyson's epic poem, In Memoriam, from 1850. It took him 17 years to write this 2,960-line poem, which had 131 sections and an epilogue. The, quote, red in tooth and claw line has been popularly accepted to be about his perceptions on evolution and the transmutation of species. There were controversial implications for theology once the British began uncovering dinosaurs, fossils, and considering concepts like evolution and extinction. These all challenged the literal interpretations of the Bible, which was a common worldview at the time and resulted in a crisis of faith for many. Please allow me a moment to, to turn to my Norton Anthology of English Literature and read to you an excerpt of Tennyson's work as he searches for comfort from the sorrow of losing his dear friend, Arthur Henry Hallam. <clears throat> Canto 56. So careful of the type, but no. From scarped cliff and quarried stone, she cries, a thousand types are gone. I care for nothing. All shall go. This, uh, she refers to nature, and the scarped cliffs refers to, to the strata that are exposed when rock is cut away. And a thousand types are gone, I care for nothing, all shall go, refers to all of the extinct species that have come before. Thou makest thine appeal to me, I bring to life, I bring to death. The spirit does but mean the breath. I know no more. See, nature here doesn't give, give a toot about life. Things come and go. That's the nature's way. And he shall he, man, her last work, who seemed so fair, such splendid purpose in his eyes, who rolled the psalm to wintry skies, who built him fanes of fruitless prayer, fanes are temples, who trusted God, was loved indeed, and loved creation's final law. Though nature red in tooth and claw with ravine shrieked against his creed. Who loved? Who suffered countless ills? Who battled? 
for the true, the just, be blown about the desert dust, or sealed within the iron hills. No more. A monster then, a dream, a discord, dragons of the prime that tear each other in their slime, were mellow music matched with him. Oh, life as futile then, as frail. Oh, for thy voice to soothe and bless, what hope of answer or redress behind the veil, behind the veil. You can hear in the verse the conflict between God and nature, with man struggling to accept who it is that controls who shall live and who shall die, and who shall be left in the rocks like a fossil. I've read that these cantos are actually considered called the dinosaur cantos, which is interesting. They're specifically referencing the dragons of the prime that tear each other in their slime, and that for all man's spirituality, fidelity, or heroism, who, quote, battled for the true, the just, yet nature cares little at all, will have man nonetheless, quote, be blown about the desert dust or sealed within the iron hills. In context, so like trapped just like a fossil is, <laughs> extinct in ages gone by. In context with the greater work, English lecturer and literary critic Dr. Oliver Turrell says, quote, nature had seen fit to take Arthur Hallam in his prime, and that is who In Memoriam is dedicated to. Uh, nature cares little, then, for the individual or single life within the species. How can she, nature, when geology has shown that so many earlier species have gone extinct? A thousand types are gone. I care for nothing. All shall go. Nature is a world of strife and conflict and violence, red in tooth and claws, Tennyson memorably puts it. This certainly prefigures the Darwinian view of nature, but Tennyson had learnt of nature's brutality from geology rather than evolution. Thank you to Dr. Turrell for that explication. So here, Grant is referencing nature's indifference to life, that nature cares nothing at all for any individual of any species, that nature freely accepts death without any hitches, and therefore the wild is a dangerous place because of teeth, because of claws, and because teeth and claws make the red come out, or something like that. <laughs> this is quickly devolving from something literary to, to like caveman talk. But in any case, what's important here is that Grant is suggesting that hunters fail often, and that successful hunts require great strategy and dedication. A carnivore won't feel shame or guilt. They're possessive of the kill. It's required for their own preservation. And Grant transmutes that possessive quality of being carnivores, like lions and tigers, to the tyrannosaur. This concept will play itself out again later in the novel, in fact, saving Grant's life. We'll find out. Fighting over who killed what. <laughs> Stylistic techniques. Tyrannosaurus is shy? We have in italics on page 145. Uh, says a shocked Ian Malcolm. And this is certainly an unexpected quality for Tyrannosaurus, or perhaps that delights Malcolm. That these animals who are intended to shock and delight audiences are in fact shy. Oh my god. She's as large as the bloody building. Malcolm then says, after he finally lays eyes upon the Tyrannosaur, That's disgusting! The G-U-S is uh, emphasized with italics to show that that's exactly how Lex was saying it. Um, and she, she says that over about the sickening crunch of bones. And ladies and gentlemen, Tyrannosaurus Rex, says Richard Kiley, as they depart the Tyrannosaur paddock. We have a colon. They were swift, colon, strong runners and astonishing jumpers on 146. Here, the colon defines the statement that they are swift. They are also strong runners and astonishing jumpers, so it seems to be used correctly. And Malcolm whispered, colon, how long will it, will it wait? And here, the colon introduces a quote. So I guess that's used properly. It seems odd. He uses colons and semicolons a lot. 
And I'm not sure. I think the first rule of semicolons is you don't use them often. Semicolon. Quote, moose were always getting free. Semicolon. They had a talent for it on 147. Here the semicolon is just joining two clauses together. The idea of, quote, nature red in tooth and claw, unquote, was wrong. Semicolon. Most often the prey got away. Again, just the same idea. A semicolon, for some reason, uh, can't be just Grant saying two sentences. He's got to, for some reason, join these two clauses together. Rhetorical questions. But who would suspect that the giant armadillo was a notorious cage breaker? Or the moose? On 147. No answers. Just they're just kind of saying, here's something surprising. Did you know? M-dash. Hunters knew how difficult it was to bring down a four-ton African elephant. M-dash. And some of the dinosaurs weighed ten times as much. And then we have another time, maybe three or four minutes, maybe M-dash. So in one instance there, it's um, in being using, kind of representing an interruption. And the other, it's just sort of a punctuation. It, the M-dash seems to replace commas and parentheses and things like that. Or here, I guess it can be used in place of a colon when you want to emphasize the conclusion of your sentence. So some of these dinosaurs weighed 10 times as much is, uh, I guess, the point he's looking to make. And he does that by employing the M-dash. Then we have uh, some more cursing. Oh my god, she's blood big as a bloody building. And the ellipses is in there too. Oh my god, ellipses. So she's as big as a bloody building, ellipses. So in that case, um, emphasis, astonishment is uh, implied, as well as speechlessness, that uh, the ellipses is showing that you know he's without words for a moment. So again, uh, that's a pretty good example of using different tools in the toolbox to, to illustrate or graphically portray astonishment. It's good. Metaphors. The sun was falling to the west, sinking into a misty horizon on 144. The sun itself is not sinking nor falling. It is just an illusion as the world continues spinning, of course, but the sinking metaphor carries a slow slowness to it, which is perhaps gentle, and the scene is meant to be gentle and peaceful. The whole landscape of Jurassic Park was bathed in a soft light. And it's not actually bathing, but you again get this peaceful, soft, comfortable feeling that there is a soft light around, as if like bath water all around you. Quote, particularly the little martinet standing beside him on the control room. 146. I thought that this was a metaphor, but it turns out that a martinet is just a strict disciplinarian, which I guess is sort of an exaggeration on Hammond, but really, more, this is just an adjective than a, a metaphor, and that's my mistake. All my life I thought this was a reference to like a puppet or a little weasel or something, but no, it means it's a strict disciplinarian. I didn't know. In a simile, the juvenile has taught herself to catch fish by ducking her head under the water, quote, like a bird. I used to envision this as a swooping scoop, but, like, if you've ever watched a heron catch a fish, it's a darting stab. Like, we must be talking that it's catching fish like a heron and not, say, like a pelican or a gull, which skim and scoop their beaks over the water, or like a penguin, which swims and catches fish, or a loon, which would dive down and catch fish, or an eagle or an osprey, which, like, strike with their talons. This has to be like a heron or a stork, right? Standing in the water, who is darting their strike to pluck a fish from the water. Because there's so much uncertainty in this, I'm going to rank this simile as not very good. <laughs> How would you envision the juvenile Tyrannosaur catching fish? And we have more motifs, especially like responsibility and safety. So Muldoon is the voice of reason at Jurassic Park, the voice of responsibility and safety, believing that some dinosaurs are too dangerous to host in a park setting, and has said that the Velociraptors should all be destroyed. They're just too dangerous. And they may even be dangerous for reasons unknown. Nobody knew the Dilophosaurus were venomous, and certainly didn't know that they could spit their venom, which almost blinded a handler, we're told on 146. Management would like to remove the poison sacks, but the vets failed twice on two different animals. Management won't allow one 
to be killed to perform an autopsy. And this puts into perspective again how very new all this science and biology is to the park and to the world. They really don't know much about these animals, and the veterinary science must be baffling considering no one has ever autopsied some of these animals. Though we've heard that there have been dead triceratops and stegosaurus so far. Plus, there must be thousands of dead infant and newborn clones that don't survive the, the hatching process. So, I mean, they've had bodies. <laughs> but maybe they haven't learned a lot from, from them, or especially not the Dilophosaurus yet. We also learn that a raptor escaped once, killing two construction work workers and maiming a third before it was recaptured on 147. This led to the visitor center being, quote, reworked with heavy barred gates, a high perimeter fence, and tempered glass windows. And the raptor holding pen was rebuilt with electronic sensors to warn of another impending escape on 147. In any case, the lesson here is that Jurassic Park doesn't prioritize safety. No duh, right? But here we have a safety inspection where Hammond believes everything is perfectly fine, but he knows full well the only safety precautions they put in the park are, that are worth a damn were put in there after people had already been killed, maimed, and nearly blinded. There are no precautionary measures at the park. They're all reactionary. That's not safety. But, like, this isn't anything you didn't know already. It's just more grist for the mill when we're talking about how unsafe the place is. The dinosaurs. We're told dinosaurs ruled the Earth for 120 million years on page 144. Well, dinosaurs first emerged in the Carnian Age of the late Triassic 237 million years ago, and the non-avian species of dinosaurs survived until the Maastrichtian Age of the late Cretaceous, which is famously 66 million years ago, or often called 65. And if you do the math, that's 237 minus 66 is 171 million years, which is much more than 120 stated here. But that said, dinosaurs didn't rule during the Triassic period. If we track 120 million years past the extinction date, 66 million years ago, that takes us to about 186 million years ago, which goes to the early Jurassic, which is indeed when dinosaurs began to dominate the terrain. What kinds of dinosaurs did you get way back in the, the Plainsbachian age? which is some part of the early Jurassic. You had coelophysids like the Procomsognathus. You had neotheropods like the Dilophosaurus. You had sauropods and prosauropods and some dinky ornithischians and some early thyreophorans like Scutellosaurus. Then everything got bigger after that. As they dominated, as they ruled, right? Dinosaur bites. We get two instances where dinosaurs are biting in this chapter, and it's strange or like hard to imagine. First, the Dilophosaurs are said to be found eating rodents on 146. Apparently, they bite the rodents, then wait for the rodents to die. But like, to a Dilophosaur, couldn't you just swallow a rat whole? I've literally seen a video of a seagull swallowing a rat whole. There's no reason a big theropod couldn't do this as well. That they'd sit down to a little meal and take polite nibbles at a rat seems preposterous, right? And the Tyrannosaurus bites a goat in the neck. Big Rex has a, quote, enormous square head, five feet long, mottled reddish-brown with huge jaws and fangs. On 148, we're told. And then it somehow takes its massive face, it's got to be multiple feet wide, and strikes with surgical accuracy at the goat's neck? This is like you biting the neck of a gummy bear. Again, Big Rex could swallow a goat without chewing. It's just down the hatch she goes. So I take umbrage with this depiction. I don't like it. And then Big Rex puts its foot on the goat to pin the carcass in place while it tears at the flesh. Which is cool sounding, but again, like the Tyrannosaurus's foot is bigger than the goat. Its toes may be bigger than the goat. The physics of this predation is incomprehensible. So I don't, I don't like it. Although I do like, you know, the bone crunching and all that. It, it's very visceral. It's very cool. It's, uh, it makes dinosaurs feel scary. 
Timeline, there is soft light and lengthening shadows as the sun falls into the western horizon on 144, and the ripples in the lagoon are described as pink crescents, indicating that the light on the horizon is beginning to bend the light around the curvature of the earth, giving us those beautiful pink and orange colors before dusk. All this is to say, it's no longer afternoon. It has now become evening, and frankly, quite early for this time of summer. This is a personal hang-up of mine, biased from my lifetime living in southern Ontario, Canada, but nightfall, evening, dusk, sunset, whatever you call it, that does not happen in late August until like 8 p.m., and I didn't think that it would be significantly different down in Costa Rica, but I am wrong. In Costa Rica, apparently, the late August sunsets begin around 5.45, and that's crazy to me, but the novel gets it right. Save me a piece of that humble pie Chris McDonald and I ate at the Florida State Fair back in episode 18, because I've earned myself a fresh slice. And we are told Big Rex, quote, conceals herself as a general rule, and you never see her out in the open, especially in daylight by Regis in 145. This is especially interesting because the sun is just going down. Perhaps she's a nocturnal hunter, and if so, just gearing up for an exciting evening. Uh, some feminism. The juvenile Tyrannosaurus is referred to as a he, as well as the Big Rex. Uh, again, but we know they are both women. Power is magic. As they stared out at the landscape, it was possible to believe that they had really been transported millions of years back in time to a vanished world on 144. There's something about believing the illusion, believing in magic, being swayed by the power of the science that's made this convincing reconstruction. Crichton spends a little extra time here building this illusion. The sun is falling to the west, sinking into a misty horizon. The whole landscape is bathed in a soft light. Lengthening shadows stretch across the ground, and the lagoon ripples with pink crescents. The apatosaurs have graceful necks, and their bodies mirrored in the moving surface. This is all far more attention than Crichton usually spends on the scenery. And that's for the purposes of building this illusion he wants us to believe as well. And at the same time, on the facing page, Alan Grant specifically says, you're destroying a lot of illusions on page 145, as he learns that the Tyrannosaurs rarely come out into the full sunlight, possibly because they have sensitive skin and sunburn easily. Creating, believing in, and destroying illusions in these two sequential pages and single scene, Crichton has built this moment to show one thing, a beautiful and serene wilderness and awe-inspiring dinosaurs who aren't as dangerous and bloodthirsty as you may believe. If the greatest predator of all time was docile and domesticated, surely this park is safe. The king of the dinosaurs has sensitive skin. She's not going to cause a fuss. Whereas, of course, we shan't believe what we're told in this novel. Believe me, I know. Regis again says, believe me this time, when asserting that the big Rex would certainly hunt a patasaurus if she could on 145. But she can't because the fences, trenches, and moats. Adding, quote, believe me, he can't go anywhere. Usually when a character speaks a phrase of this nature in Jurassic Park, it's either entirely false, a complete lie, or will ultimately reveal itself to be untrue. And this chapter's opening scene and our introduction to Big Rex shows us a humble king in a serene park setting that successfully creates the illusion of going back to the Mesozoic era in perfect safety. And of course, that'll prove itself to be untrue before too long. Crichton tropes without, without rehashing exactly what I finished saying about the intro to this chapter, but Michael Crichton's sci-fi literature is commonly understood to not lean heavily on literary techniques, extended metaphors, character arcs, things like that. They're just action-adventure journeys based on the latest crazy science thing gone awry. But it's not that Crichton is incapable of flowery language. It's just that he picks his spots, and the beginning of this chapter successfully lulls the reader into the illusion. You believe the Tyrannosaur is sensitive and shy that the fences, trenches, and moats are sufficient, and that Jurassic Park is going to offer an unimaginable experience transporting guests, quote, back in time to a vanished world. When Crichton focuses his literary chops on delivering an awesome vision, he executes with the clarity and finesse of a world-class, best-selling author. 
building a mystery. We sort of get two mysteries answered in this chapter. First, recall back in episode 19, Jurassic Park, Sattler, and Grant notice that the rooms have been retrofitted with protective bars, which weren't in the plans, as well as tempered glass set in a steel frame. The doors are steel clad and a 12 foot high, inch thick steel fence surrounding the lodge. They wonder why this was added to the plans. Well, if we couldn't have guessed the obvious, now we're specifically told, yep, the raptors got out and killed two construction workers and maimed a third. This led to the visitor center being, quote, reworked with heavy barred gates, a high perimeter fence, and tempered glass windows. And the raptor holding pen was rebuilt with electronic sensors to warn of another impending escape. This also answers Malcolm's question from episode 24, Control. Have the raptors learned somewhere along the line that humans are easy to kill? On 120. And the answer is yes, twice. Granted, only one raptor is said to have gotten out and learned how to kill people, but I guess... They chat amongst themselves and spread the word down at the holding pen, so they all know how to kill people now. All right, thank you to my special guest today. Great big thank you to Justin Kiley one more time. Thanks, pal. I appreciate it. I hope you had fun. <laughs> I had a good time. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show, and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.